Warning, this episode contains spoilers, coarse language, and shh, our internet dad's on this one. Hi, this is Kevin from Made of Fail, and you're listening to I Hate Love Remakes. If it's something that's really well done the first time, it's not broken, stop trying to smash it. I'm always intrigued to see what it is that people are going to do with something that's already been done before. I hate remakes. I love remakes. Welcome everybody to episode 10 of I Hate Love Remakes. I am Noel, and joining me as always is Evie. Can I get a puppy? If someone's willing to buy you a puppy. Yes, I want a fluffy, cuddly one and a Bratz movie star makeover Sasha. Okay. You haven't seen Kick-Ass yet, have you? No. Okay. Well, it was either that or the cunt line, and I didn't want to say cunt. Understandable. Even though I just said it twice, so there we are. Yeah. You never say the word cunt. I say the word cunt a lot. Just not on the podcast. I follow a lot of people in England, and apparently that's actually a very popular term over there. It's not as nuclear of a term as it is over on the side of the pond. It's used about as common as the word dick is over here. Mm -hmm. I like the way it sounds. Okay. (laughs) Moving on, though. This is probably the one and only time we're going to use it in this series. (laughs) Unless you want to talk about a dead alien baby's vagina again. Ah, God. Nightmares. Speaking of Twilight... (laughs) 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 joining us this episode is a very special guest we've already had made a fails dana on and now it's the other half of the internet loins that spawned us everybody please welcome kevin when you say special do you mean like short bus like stop eating the pace special no like you're our mentor our guru almost everything i've done online is ripping off you that's special oh well crap serves you right yeah (laughs) uh how you doing Oh, we're doing good. All right. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Uh, for our few listeners who shamefully haven't checked out Made of Fail yet, do you want to just tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I'm Kevin. I run and own the turned Made of Fail Productions whole big internet conglomerate kind of thing that's kind of grown into what it is now, and I still don't get paid for it. But basically, Made a Fail just started with me and my friend Dana having awesome conversations about the stuff that we like. And it's kind of grown to being this whole kind of geekiness, yes, community. We've expanded it. We've got three podcasts now with Flagship, This Crazy Thing, and Tessa's new Warcraft one, and then a couple blogs and some other stuff. Basically, Made a Fail is awesome stuff you should be checking out. It's actually growing kind of faster than I thought it was going to. I'm I'm, I'm very, very proud of it. And you're only involved with, what, four-fifths of everything? (laughs) (laughs) I I had this kind of epiphany on Twitter the other day in an existential moment, if you will, where I realized that as much as I call myself a writer and I like writing, and I think I'm reasonably good at it, and as much as I call myself a radio personality, which, hi, what I'm best at is kind of arranging things for other people to shine, because we're doing the Deconstructing Moya stuff, you and I, Mm -hmm. and you and Tessa are completely kicking my ass in that. Well, thank you very much. There's a term for that, 
and I was chagrined to find out that it was producer. So I guess uh, I'm more of a producer than I am a content creator. You're a producer, but you're still able to do the content well. Well, yeah, because, I mean, the best producers still need to know what the stuff is that they're producing. So I still do as much as I do, not only to keep my hand in, but because it's fun. Yeah, exactly. Which is really all this comes down to is fun. Exactly. I've been noticing this with all the various stuff I've been doing, which is I'm doing way too much and trying to be you again, <laughs> is it keeps you active, it keeps you going, and, and you're doing what you love and sharing it with other people who love it. And that, that's where it really gets good. And the fact that people are listening and reading the stuff that you create is just an extra bonus. I'm still blown away that on our Farscape blog, we're getting people who actually made Farscape reading it. We've had at least two people now, right? Yeah. The lady from the art department and... Uh, and one of the writers, yeah. One, one of the, the writers, writers producers. Of, of the episode that we uh, that we had just done. That I kind of trashed. <laughs> it, it, it was like, well, to be entirely fair. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, oh, crap. And he was so great about it that they've been sharing the link around the office. Yeah, now if only we could get someone involved in the actual making of remakes to listen to our remakes podcast. Speaking of... Speaking of. So, Kevin, <laughs> do you want to tell us what, in general, your view is when it comes to remakes? I am... I believe the term is cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. I don't immediately discount the idea of a remake just because it's a remake, but I'm wary because there have been... You've been so hurt. many cases. Yeah, I've been hurt before. I want to take things nice, you know, maybe a dinner and a movie, nothing too fast. I was actually just talking to somebody at work who has the standard all remakes are horrible outlook. And I was like, well, you say that, but how about Ocean's Eleven? Mm -hmm. uh, he was like, okay, fair point. So there have been some amazing remakes and there have been some not so amazing remakes. And I'm just watching to see where these ones will go. On a completely unrelated note, I actually had someone say that, no, the new Ocean's Eleven is terrible and the old one is brilliant. And I said, when was the last time you watched both? Oh, about 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Give me another watch. <laughs> Evie, did you want to tell us what we're going to be covering this episode? No, but I will anyway. We're doing Assault on Precinct 13 from 1976, I think. And then hmm. they did a remake in 2005. And this will be part two in our series exploring the remakes of John Carpenter. And Kevin, did you want to tell us a bit about what, what are your views when it comes to John Carpenter? Um, well, John Carpenter's kind of really influenced me a little bit in my life. I had a friend who was really big into filmmaking, and he and I actually wanted to start our own production company a few years back. He was writing some stuff, and I had some ideas that I wanted to write for some movies, and we wanted to shoot it down in the boonies of Illinois, where there's nothing there but a lot of gorgeous old-time scenery, the kind of stuff that you usually only see in New England. Mm -hmm. And he went through basically the movies that he thought I really needed to see if I was going to be on board with the whole filmmaking thing. And one of the directors that he really kind of indoctrinated me on was John Carpenter and Assault on Precinct 13, definitely one of them. Here's the thing about John Carpenter. The man has a vision of exactly how he wants things to go. Yes. And he doesn't really necessarily like to delegate. All these movies that you're going to be finding out about John Carpenter is that when he directs a movie, he also films and produces and writes the music and is the screenwriter and is best grip and gaffer and the guy who goes. He used to be his own editor, too, and, and even now he still stays in the editing room all mm -hmm. the time. 
Unless they kick him out like they did Village of the Damned. Oh, God. But what you realize is that even though he doesn't delegate, he knows what he's doing, mm-hmm. and he ties things in together to the vision that he wants it to be, and it all comes together, and it's a work of art. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. There have been some great things. I really believe that Assault on Precinct 13 is one of those movies that is just an art form of filmmaking. Prince of Darkness, not so much. What I like about John Carpenter, and and this kind of builds on what you said, is he is an artist. He has a very clear and distinctive style. It's a very consistent style. But he also is a crowd pleaser. He wants to tell a good crowd pleasing story that'll get the audience excited and, and keep him involved and everything. And he's kind of a perfect harmony between entertainment and art. I definitely agree with that. And it's very much a distinctive filmmaking style, too. Yes. I was just watching In the Mouth of Madness. You can tell it's John Carpenter because it looks like an 80s movie. Yeah. In like 1995 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. We forgot to mention that one in our last episode. That's one of my favorites of his. Well, do we want to move on to the main films of, of Topic here? By all means. Okay, let us start with the 1976 film Assault on Precinct 13, written and directed by John Carpenter. Now, before we move into discussion, let's uh, let's just lay it out on the table where we all stand with this film. So, uh, Evie, do you recommend this movie? Yes. This movie should not work for me. God, I should be ragging on some of the actors or the effects or the music, but I can't. This movie is just so different from the Jerry Brockheimer, Michael Bay movies that we have now. And for some reason, this works for me. It's a film that's just perfect in its imperfections. All right, Kevin, do you recommend this movie? Wholeheartedly, yes. This movie is, as I mentioned before, is really an art form on the screen. It's a very simple concept, a very simple story, and it's allowed to just be. There's not anything getting in the way of what it is. You have the basics, you have the conflict, and it just, it it is what it is. And it doesn't pretend to be anything else. It's almost pure in its simplicity. Hmm. I also very strongly recommend this movie. It is so clean, so crisp, so simple, and yet there is certain amounts of depth to it. The actors are surprisingly strong, given that they're mostly unknowns in a period known mainly for just exploitation schlock. And the uh, the characters that they're playing are surprisingly well-defined characters with just enough depth to make them more than cardboard cutouts, yet not overdone so as to detract from the simplicity of the piece. It's just so cleanly put together in the way that it's shot and in the way that it's cut and in the way that it tells its narrative, and yet extremely strikingly so. There's, there are some just absolutely beautiful, beautiful shots in this movie that, as Kevin said, are almost works of art. I don't know that he's ever made a film this precisely simple and clean, except with maybe Halloween, that is just, it's so perfect. As Evie said, there are elements that you almost want to call into question, like the music or some of the acting and all that stuff, whereas by itself, it would probably be laughable, but in conjunction with the whole, it flourishes, and and it's just, it's beautiful. Let's uh, go ahead and move into the broader breakdown of the film itself. For his first assignment as a Los Angeles police lieutenant, Ethan Bishop is sent to the station house at Precinct 9, District 13, where the captain, an officer, and two secretaries, Lee and Julie, are packing up the last remaining bits in their station's relocation to a new building. The captain takes off, and Bishop's job is to hold the fort until morning. Why don't we go ahead and talk about Austin Stoker as Ethan Bishop? I love Bishop. He's he's actually, I don't know exactly how accurate I'm being in this, but at least for me personally, he's one of the 
first actual serious black actors that as a main character is not any kind of exploitation. He's not the sidekick. He's the strong hero with no black stereotypical gimmick. He's an actual living, breathing person. And in the 70s, that actually was significant to have somebody Mm -hmm. like that that wasn't a gimmick, that wasn't some sort of music hall black police officer. I love the way his character is. What I love is that they do make the fact that he's black a part of his character, but they Mm -hmm. don't exaggerate it to the point where it's like Shaft or anything like that. They make a point where he lived in that neighborhood as a kid, and it is a ghetto. It is a mostly abandoned by now ghetto. And there's that great bit where the secretary asks him, so who pulled you out of this place to make you who you are? And he says, no one. I walked out myself. He is a very good, strong leader figure, and yet there is still an everyman appeal to him. Over the course of the film, we see that he does kind of panic at times, and he does get a little overwhelmed at times, but he still is an intelligent, strong leader. And as you said, in a period known mainly for just cheap black exploitation films, it's nice to see a man who is black, but that's not his defining role. The defining role is that he's a good, strong man. Evie, you got anything you want to add? I got nothing. He was just really awesome. I was just like, no, because I don't watch 70s movies mostly. So I was just like, nothing was annoying me. I was a little shocked. Mm -hmm. And he was just, he was so cool. I'm like, you better not die. And he doesn't. So yay. I also love the introduction to the secretaries. You have such two polar opposites in Lee and Julie. It'll become a lot more apparent later on in the movie. And I'm I'm probably going to hold this off until then. But I, I love the dichotomy they have there. Mm-hmm. What I love is that you don't really expect the secretaries to really play as prominent of a role as they do later on in the film, especially the character of Lee. I love the way that the film just kind of drops in a tiny bit of exposition just as he's driving to work. Is That's where we learn about the gang and their catch of weapons is on the radio as he's driving to work. It's not something that's ever really clearly explained throughout the film unless you really pay attention to the radio. But it's in the background. It I is love in that. the background, yeah. yeah. And I also love the um, extra little touches of like Bishop's ties to this police station and this community. And I love the little story about how as a child, his father sent him to the police station to have the police officers hold him in an office for like an hour because he swore in front of his mother. And then just that little touch of he carved a word on a desk that's still there. We never see what (laughs) it is, but just that he looks down at the desk and there's the word that he carved there. John Carpenter just has fantastic world-building things, just the little details that don't really mean anything in the concept of the overall story, except to make it realistic, to make it work in a much larger world. Exactly. I mean, it takes a very simple thing, and it gives you just enough depth to attach yourself to it, to kind of invest yourself in the characters and be like, I really identify with this person, and I want to see where he goes, you know? Why don't we just talk about the concept that the entire setting of this story is a police station that is understaffed, that has almost no resources because it's being shut down and relocated outside of a neighborhood that's now almost entirely abandoned. The whole feel of this, the whole vibe of this is kind of like the last one out turns out the light. These guys are there. They're not really taking it seriously because there's nobody else around. They're just putting in their hours, but they're doing their duty and they feel that even with their jokes and everything, they feel, yeah, we're here. We're going to sit this last hour, especially with Bishop. This is his first assignment as a lieutenant. He's just been promoted. Mm -hmm. So he's going to do it and he's going to do it right, Uh, especially with the significance to him, all all the the sentimentality of the area and with the station himself. If he's going to be closing it, he's going to be the one closing it down and he's going to do it right. 
it should be said that Carpenter did originally write this as a Western, where it was supposed to be a frontier police station that was coming under attack by Apaches. It's got an Alamo feel to it. it again, that, that'll become increasingly apparent later on in the movie. But what I love is that by taking a ghetto that has become so abandoned that they're not even going to leave a police station there because there's so few people left in the area anyways that there's really no one to police, that he manages to find an isolated patch within a city. I mean, it's Bishop who later on says, this can't be happening. It's in the middle of a city. Well, no, you're in an area of the city that's pretty much been left behind. There's no one there to hear your call. Mm Mm-hmm. Special Officer Starker arrives at a prison to transport several prisoners, one of whom is a hoodlum named Wells, another being notorious death row inmate Napoleon Wilson. The bus rolls out, but one of the prisoners is visibly ill, so Starker has the bus pull over to the nearest precinct house, Precinct 9, District 13. Bishop is reluctant to accept the prisoners at first, but lets Starker bring them in so a doctor can be called. Anybody got a smoke? (laughs) I love that line. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about Darwin Jostin as Napoleon Wilson. Oh, Wilson. You get this vibe that he's dangerous, but you don't exactly know why. Yeah, and I don't think we're ever told what he actually did. That's the thing. You, you never get told, and uh, people keep referring to it, and people keep asking him, and he doesn't talk about it. And Well, they don't ask him what he did. They just ask him why he did it. And yeah, they, they it. never. you know he's killed people and that he's on death row, so it must have been bad to a degree, but we never find out what exactly. Right, and the fact is, is that you kind of have an interesting thing, is either he doesn't want to talk about it or he doesn't think that it's necessary or that he doesn't believe that he did anything wrong. You have an interesting question, what his motives were, even within the universe as well, but even outside. You don't really get that as if he is feeling any remorse for that, or if he honestly believes it's over, it's done with, and there's no point in talking about it because there's nothing that can be done about it. He very much knows that he's got no chance of anything, so he's just going to be himself and damn the torpedoes. There were a few bits where on his face you can see what could be either guilt or regret. But as you say, I think it's he's already crossed the line and he knows there's no way to step back. Mm -hmm. And yet there is a sense of honor and decency to it. Over the course of the film, you can tell that he is bonding with and cares for the people that he's fighting alongside. So it is interesting that, yeah, we never know what it was that led him to this situation. Because he does seem to be a decent guy, but yet, you know, he's committed really brutal crimes He doesn't deny it, and we see that he has no problem really killing over the course of this film. And he is a smartass, too. He's very much a smartass. I actually have a bit of speculation about Wilson in that I think whatever he did, whatever the reasons were for, he believed he was right. And he knows that it was wrong, but he believed it was the right thing to do. Hmm. I believe that, and that's why he doesn't think that the police are wrong in catching him. He still thinks it was justified. You notice in the movie, he doesn't try to defend anything that he does. Mm -hmm. He doesn't try to explain it. He doesn't try to say, no, 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 this is wrong, or no, no, no. See, I did it because you pigs are are horrible and, and all that. He doesn't even make the effort. Yeah, he doesn't treat the cops as bad because they're cops. He's content. Yes. Is what he is. But yeah, he does have a sense of justice to a degree of, I I love the scene where the warden decides to get in one last thwack before letting him go and knocks him out of the chair. And and Napoleon is just like, well, I guess I don't sit as well as I used to. And then outside the prison, he finds a way to wrap his chain around the warden and spill him to the ground and says, well, I guess he doesn't stand as well as he used to either. He got his justice. 
Mm-hmm. That felt like such a posed scene, though, like when they, the guards come at him and they almost kind of stop. And I'm like, it seems so posed, but you go with it. Well, you kind of need it. It's a character yeah. defining moment. You need that to see what kind of person Wilson is. It could have been played overly badass, but by playing it so understated in the way that he does, it does have that sense of justice. He's just doing what was done to him. I don't know. I, I like the kind of just the wryness to him. It's a very Gary Sinisean type of performance, I want to say. Mm-hmm. He's not stopping and brooding over it, or he's not trying to rage against it. He's just like, you know, this is the life I'm in. Let's just make... It is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. He's almost like the John Wayne of this movie, if we were to carry over the whole thing. Where... I would argue Bishop's kind of the John Wayne of the movie. Mm-hmm. Bishop's kind of the John Wayne. Yeah, I, I guess Napoleon would be more of the Robert Mitchum. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think we're overdoing our metaphor. <laughs> so why don't we get to his name, Napoleon itself? Is that's kind of a recurring gag where people ask him, so what's the story behind the name Napoleon? And he says, well, I'll, I'll tell you the moment before you die. And, and he never gets around to doing it. Mm-hmm. He tells that to Starker, who dies before he gets a chance to tell him. And he tells that to uh, Bishop, but of course they survive. It's another one of those things. It's like, what's written on the table? What was his crime? It's Carpenter's giving you just enough death to suggest there's a story there, but he's not telling you the story behind it. Because that's not the story. Exactly. And it's also just a great bit of, so what's the story behind Napoleon? Maybe I'll tell you sometime. (laughs) It almost makes me wonder if The Dark Knight, the Heath Ledger performance as the Joker, the changing story about his scars, if that was kind of a tribute to that. Because you never get the right answer, and there may not be a right answer, or there's obviously a right answer is what the scars are, but the fact of the matter is that the answer doesn't matter because that's not what the story is. It is a very influential film. I still hold to what I was told a few years ago. Anyone who wants to make films should see a certain number of classic movies, and this definitely needs to be in there. I definitely agree with that. Why don't we talk about Wells here... There's not really much to Wells aside from the fact that he's the other big guy. He's the one that's physically imposing, whereas Wilson is the one whose mere presence is imposing. He's also the one who alerts Starker to the fact that the other guy is actually sick and not just... I love when Starker's like, well, the warden only said he had a cough. I'm like, well, if the warden's dead, then this guy's clearly just a drama queen. Yeah, that guy Mm -hmm. is obviously quite ill. What I like about Wells is that he is almost the classic prisoner archetype of, you know, yelling at the pigs and everything like that and wanting to get away. And Napoleon is, he's a very different character. As we said, he's kind of almost the Zen prisoner. He doesn't take it out on the people who are punishing him. Whereas Wells is, Wells is the one who will yell pig in your face. Mm -hmm. I also want to mention Wells is, uh, it's kind of interesting that he's probably the most recognizable face in this movie just because Tony Burton is the only actor other than Stallone to appear in all six Rocky movies. He was Apollo Creed's trainer who then became Rocky's trainer halfway through. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't yeah. even recognize him. Holy crap. He was the trainer who took over after the Burgess Meredith character died. And he wow. was Apollo Creed's trainer since the first film. I think him, Stallone, and uh, who's the guy who plays the, the brother-in-law? Oh, God, what's his name? I think they're like the only actors to appear in, the, in all six parts of the series. Anything we want to say about Charles Cyphers, who played Starker? I kind of like that he's almost set up as... This guy seems like he might be a bigger presence in the film than he ultimately ends up being. They kind of play him up a bit. And he doesn't seem as, I mean, he, he's definitely a firm, he has a firm hand with how he takes care of his prisoners, but he's not overly cruel. Like, I mean, there's the scene where the warden knocks Napoleon out of a chair, and you never get the sense that Starker would do that, just from his reaction to it. His interest is mainly just keeping order. 
Right. He takes his job seriously. And yet he's still curious about Napoleon. And he's the one who asks him about, you know, why did you kill those people and what's about your name? And there is an interesting level of curiosity there. And of course, then the sympathy in that he recognizes that one of his prisoners is very ill. But then I love is that he's not so much worried about the prisoner. He's worried about catching whatever the prisoner has. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that always struck me as, as a bit of a plot hole is that when they pull over to the station house, Bishop tells him, you know, you just go 10 blocks further and you'll get to another station. It's like they couldn't drive 10 blocks. I mean, I know that would kind of ruin a bit of our setup, but it's just, you know, if another station is just 10 blocks away, you know, that you're not going to catch anything more than you've already been exposed to. Mm -hmm. Damn it, man, we don't have time for 10 blocks. That was like my only real plot hole in this film. You know, he says the line 10 blocks. It's like you couldn't go less than a mile. But I need expired emodium. <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys probably don't have any TP left, but come on. <laughs> oh, one other thing I want to mention is I, I also love how it's not Precinct 13. It's Precinct 9, District 13. Yeah. Because this film was originally supposed to be called The Siege, and it was the distributors that came up with the idea of assault on Precinct 13. And, of course, they had to use 13 instead of 9 because it's it's much more of a haunting number. I like the number 13. But then I just love that in the film, they, they didn't even change that at all. It's still Precinct 9, District 13. Yeah, mm. I noticed that. I was like, wait a second. Shouldn't this be called Assault on Precinct 9? doesn't really make sense in conjunction with the film because of that aspect, but it's still a good striking title. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't matter because the movie's so awesome. It still works so well. Mm -hmm. We're always willing to forgive things that don't make sense as long as they're still just good. In an earlier scene, several armed members of the gang Street Thunder are ambushed by cops in an alley and gunned down when they try to make a run for it. It seems a large cache of weapons has fallen into criminal hands and the police want to recover them before gang members organize. In a rundown apartment, the leaders of Street Thunder, surrounded by the crates of weapons, pledge unity by cutting themselves and mixing their blood in a bowl. We next see the leaders driving around town, prepping silenced weapons and aiming them at passing pedestrians. They spot an ice cream truck and begin stalking it. So here is our nameless, pretty much wordless force that will be attacking us down the road. Here's the thing about Assault on Precinct 13 is that this is John Carpenter's tribute to George Romero. This is his zombie movie without actually having zombies in it. You have the nameless, the faceless. You'll notice that they don't speak. In the scene where we first see them, they do say for the nine. Right. But aside from <laughs> that, they don't talk to people. They don't talk to each other. They are the monsters. They are the ones that you cannot reason with them. Exactly. And they are just going to keep coming. They're almost a hive mind. Resistance is futile. And to have them talk, to have them have motive such as that, that would humanize them too much. And then you would sympathize with them for a bit. The point of this is not to sympathize with them. This is the nameless horde. Mm -hmm. It almost gets into the whole idea of gang culture and gang violence. Is there really a reason or a sense for it other than a kind of primitive territorial aspect? And it's it's more that, you know, the cops took out some of us, so we're going to start taking out random people on the street and cops, you know? They didn't even set out to attack Precinct 13, as we'll get to. They were just after one guy. Mm -hmm. This is their territory now. They want to call the shots. Now that That's about all the motivation you can really get out of them. I love their stone-facedness. There's bits later on where you can tell these guys are hyped up on like however many drugs you, they could probably get their hands on to the point where they don't even feel things anymore. The blood in the bowl thing, that is a heavily ritualized kind of an aspect to their character. It brings them kind of into a little bit of the occult mm -hmm. and into this is not rational, reasonable behavior. This is unknowable. This is ineffable. This is 
eldritch is kind of the best phrase for that. Now, here is one bit that I think the film does wrong, and I don't think this was Carpenter's fault. I think this is probably something the distributors added or, or something, was when I first watched this film in my teens and when I just rewatched it for the first time here earlier this month is I got the sense that this isn't one gang. This is all the gangs of the city coming together and forging a unity and trying to attack en masse, and that's kind of why you have such various looks and ethnicities and everything. But then the film has that one line that you hear on the radio of yeah. the gang Street Thunder, which is noted for its multi-ethnic brotherhood or, or whatever, or its multi-ethnic members, and you get the sense that that line was forced into the movie by the distributors to both give the gang a name and to explain the multi-ethnic nature. I kind of like more the silent idea of this is just all the various gangs deciding to band together. To run this town. Because you have that one line about how they were worried that gangs would start organizing. Well, the gangs are starting to organize. Yeah, because Street Thunder is... I'm like, you guys might want to rethink the name. Well, it was leading into the 80s where everything had to have a uh, an action figure. You had to have branding. Well, you see, I didn't even pick up on that name earlier. I, I saw it in the trailer. The trailer is all about the feared gang Street Thunder, you know? And I thought, oh, this is just something they added for advertising. And then I'm watching the film again a second time here, and no, they do drop the name Street Thunder during a bit on the radio that is... It's, it's one of those blink-and-you-miss-it moments. The throwaway mention, yeah. Exactly. And I have the feeling that this was just forced into the movie by someone who was paying for it. I prefer to just kind of ignore that and just pretend that it's all the various gangs of the cities packing together. Because you get that great stone-faced blonde guy, you get black members, you have the one guy who's obviously made up to look like Che. Mm -hmm. I like the idea that it's whatever differences they have, they're just putting aside now to say, this is our world now and we're taking it. Which is completely impossible if you actually look at the reality behind what gangs are like. But it's a great play up on that 70s fear of the increase in gang violence. Well, yeah, that, this was the era before everybody started worrying about the Cold War and everything. You, you'll, you'll notice that other movies of the era tended to pipe up the whole gang warfare aspect of things. You notice the film The Warriors, that's that's pretty much, that's all that's about. Exactly. This was the big thing. The 80s was about the Cold War, and the 90s had a lot of radiation fear. Mm-hmm. And the movies of the previous decade, the... the, the... It was more ghetto fear. Yeah. I almost want to say. And and you of course then you that's where you get like a lot of the black exploitation flicks and whatnot. And like Dirty mm-hmm. Harry taking on gang ruffians and like a death wish where like gangs are attacking and raping people and a guy goes out and tears them all down in revenge, you know? And then of course you get the post apocalyptic films where the nuclear horror brought about an increase of, of a world run by gangs, you know. Mm-hmm. So full circle. Yes, full circle. <laughs> and then we get the great scene where the leaders are all in the cars just slowly assembling their weapons with snipers on them. And then you have that great bit of just the one guy with the sniper rifle just training it on random people that he's driving past. Was I the only one who thought, oh, my God, he could have, every time he did it to a person that both times I'm like, he could shoot that person. He's going to mm-hmm. is he going like it's an I was... old lady with groceries and a homeless guy on the street. Yeah. Yeah. And both times I believed he was going to actually shoot them. Yeah. And what I love is that while you do have a shot of him holding the gun, you get so much personality and so much menace just from that shot of the window slowly lowering and then the barrel with the snipe, with with the silencer on it, just poking out and just tracking people. Just because they can. It's chilling. Yeah. They're pretty much driving around with the silencer just sticking out the window, which is pretty friggin' ballsy. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. That's what I love is they just don't give a shit. And then we get the introduction of the ice cream truck with the driver who just starts noticing this car that it drives past him, turns around and drives past again. 
and then it keeps coming back and passing him again. I like the ice cream truck driver. There's so much expression on his face of just this dawning horror of, oh, this is not going to be good. You mentioned that Wilson would have been kind of the Gary Sinise of the 70s. Uh, The truck driver kind of would have been the Steve Buscemi. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. And I love that it says a lot that, you know, this is the type of neighborhood where the ice cream truck driver has a gun under the dashboard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A man named Lawson and his daughter Kathy are driving around the streets of L.A. trying to find his mother's house. Lawson pulls over to call her for directions, and Kathy goes over to the ice cream truck to get a cone. Both she and the driver are shot by the street thunder leaders who drive off. Lawson rushes over. His daughter is dead, but the driver gives the man a gun before dying. Lawson hops in his car and chases the gang leader's car down, killing one of them before running off. I honestly, it wasn't until this last time that I watched it that I realized, oh, they're trying to go to his mother's house. I thought it was maybe his ex-wife's house or something like that. But then, again, Carpenter is being very vague in the details, but I gradually put together that his mother's husband died, and he's trying to use his daughter to convince her to move out of the city because he he doesn't want her in this rundown city. He wants to take her out to the suburbs where he lives. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just interesting how I I didn't understand what he was talking about until this last time I watched it. It's one of those ones you really got to listen to. And yet it's not really important to the story. So, It's just a little extra bit of world building. Mm -hmm. This sequence is probably one of my favorite sequences in filmmaking Kathy and the ice cream truck because this is John Carpenter giving the finger to an age-old taboo yes the, yeah. y- you don't kill kids in movies the kids are always immune to things and this is him saying here's the thing these guys are monsters this is how you let the audience know that there is no redeeming quality to these people it, it's a note to the audience so you don't feel any sympathy for them, but it's also a note to Hollywood saying, look, you, it's... If it's you do this, it responsibly, you can make it work. Yeah, it's the 70s and things that were formerly taboo, you got to know how to use them because you can do anything. Yes. I really think John Carpenter was saying, hey, look, this is what I can do and this is why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. It's groundbreaking is, is what this is. I don't think in any movie before this, anybody's ever killed children especially this brutally. Did Jaws come before or after this? Jaws, I think, was, you know what? I'm on Wikipedia right Jaws now. Was 19, Jaws was before this. Before. Yes, but granted, there's a difference between a kid being pulled under the water by a shark and a girl taking a bullet to the chest while getting ice Point cream. blank. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just that shot of just this eruption of blood on her chest and just that stunned look on her face as she drops off camera. It's just, it's a haunting shot. You both kind of almost laugh because of the absolute balls it took to do that. But there is genuine emotion to the moment, too, of she's not a bad kid. She's not like an annoying kid that you kind of want to see someone do something to. She, she's a kid who's there with her father to try and convince grandma to move out of the city with him. And, and she just wanted to get an ice cream cone. And she just wanted vanilla twist. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I was going to say, Kim Richards, she plays it really, really well. Because if you go back through some of the other episodes where there were child actors, I don't always like the child actors. Yes. Sometimes, well, I mean, Kim Richards, yeah. it should be said, is an experienced child actor. She was the co-star of the Witch Mountain movies. Mm-hmm. She was one of the two lead kids in those movies. So she, did, she didn't she have acting so experience. Mm-hmm. Well, And her little sister is actually the little girl who appears in, in Halloween as one of the ones that one of the girls is babysitting. It is interesting because I'm such a huge fan of the Witch Mountain movies to then see her take a bullet to the chest and just die. It's just, holy crap. Mm-hmm. I'm actually trying to remember if the Witch Mountain movies were done before or after this. They were done before. 
Okay. That's actually a very interesting bit is that she was already established as both the star of these kind of Disney family films. It's a lot like Jodie Foster, who was an established Disney actress when she played a 12-year-old prostitute and taxi driver, you know? And then it's also kind of interesting that he would take another Disney actor who was trying to kind of break out of that Disney image with Kurt Russell when they would do Elvis and then, of course, go on to do Escape from New York and The Thing. I don't know if there's any relation there, but... No, because Kurt Russell always went back to Disney. He's kind of, even now, I mean, he was in um, Miracle and Sky High, and Sky High is a really great movie. No, but but he was trying to break out of the child actor mold in the 70s from, you know, Computer Wore Tennis Shoes and The Strongest Man in the World. And it wasn't really until Elvis that he was able to do that. And again, I don't know if there's a connection there. I don't know if maybe there was a casting director who was tied to Disney people who got them both tied to Carpenter or whatnot. I don't know. But I just find it an interesting connection. Anything we want to say about Martin West as Lawson? He seems like a good dad. I like the bit where it, there's so much backstory suggested that we, again, never find out of in that he's so hesitant to go to the police to ask for directions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's like, but isn't that what the police are for? And and you could tell he's just kind of terrified of going near the cops. Then there's that scene where Lawson chases the gang leaders down and shoots the blonde member. And this is where we get into the whole aspect of they're almost drugged up and ruthless to the point where he doesn't even really feel the bullets that hit him. Yeah. You know, he doesn't drop until his body shuts down because it's been shot enough times. Mm-hmm. He like notices that a bullet's been shot into him and then, then just kind of looks right back as though nothing's happened, as though, as though someone like punched him in the shoulder, you know? And again, it's it's an aspect of the drugs, and we logically know it's an aspect of the drugs, but it also serves to dehumanize these guys to the audience. These are the zombies. These are the monsters. Right. And I don't know this for a fact, but I wonder if this was around the time that PCP started coming in because of the way that that kind of almost turned people into rage machines that couldn't feel things. It would make a lot of sense. Lawson makes it to Precinct 9, District 13, but is too exhausted and shocked to tell Bishop and the others what's going on. All of Street Thunder quietly assembles and surrounds the precinct house, cutting the lights and telephones, then opening fire on the building with their silenced weapons. The remaining officer, the sick prisoner, Starker, and the transfer guards are all killed. Bishop keeps everyone else down until the shooting stops. So this is our first big action scene. I love the shots of just the bullets tearing everything apart, poking through the windows and pinging off at desks and throwing paper all, all over and knocking pictures off the wall. And, and yet it's, it's all with silencers. So you don't get like rat tat tats yeah. and bangs. And you'll notice there's no music during the sequence either. Mm-hmm. The destruction is the music itself. What is it, like three, maybe four full minutes of just absolute force of destruction? Exactly. Just everything just just being destroyed. Mm -hmm. And there's so many shots where none of the actors are present, so I'm guessing they just, let's just take a gun and start shooting our set. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's just so haunting, and it shows the power of these guys that they'll just blow away a police station. And and then you have the cop who, uh, before they unleash all the fire on the station, steps outside to see if anyone's following Lawson, and they just take him down, and Julia's like, oh, <laughs> he fell. It doesn't register with her that this guy's just been killed in front of her. And then you have the prison guards who are taking the prisoners out back who just get mowed down. Yeah. And even Starker just takes three bullets to the back when he just happens to be right in front of Bishop, you know? He gives his life to save Bishop, shockingly. And then Bishop is sort of using him as a human shield. Oh, because Bishop's no-nonsense. He knows that yeah. he's dead already. Exactly. Yeah. It's just such a it's so strikingly brutal. put together scene. It's brutal even that, yeah, it's brutal to see them cut down. And then it just, for some reason, it continues to be brutal as you're just seeing the stark shots of just this room being torn apart by bullets. Even though it's a room that everyone was about to abandon, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
they're almost executing the old station instead of letting it just kind of quietly die out. They're executing it. They're torturing it. Mm-hmm. The station itself has taken on such personality. This is where we start getting into Alamo territory. This is this yes. is where they're holding down the fort. This is where they pull in, realize that they're under assault. This is where everything starts taking place, coming together. And this is where we start to see Lawson taking on the role of Barbara from Night of the Living Dead, where he's almost just catatonic and doesn't really do anything for the rest of the film. As the dust settles, the survivors realize the use of silencers and the mostly condemned and abandoned neighborhood means it's unlikely that anyone heard the attack and called for help. Bishop sees dozens of gang members moving through the shadowy trees across the street. Three of them calmly march up to the building, throw down a jar of their shared blood, and lay down a sheet with the words Cholo written on it, which Wells later tells us is a pledge to fight to the death. Julie suggests handing Lawson over to the gang members, but Bishop won't allow it. There's such a dichotomy here between Julie and Lee here. Julie is... um, She's the kind of the typical damsel in distress. And Lee... Is badass. I have such respect for Lee. There's a scene later on in the movie, we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah. um, That is my absolute favorite. And once again, I mean, you guys were touching on way back in your first episode about, from Psycho, the role of female characters in the 60s. -hmm. Lee kind of personifies the female badass that you'll start to see Mm -hmm. in the 70s and kind of sets the tone for things from then on. And, but what I love is she's still, she's still very much a woman. It's not like they're butching her up. She's no. still very much a woman, but she's strong, and she takes in the situation as it happens instead of freaking out. She doesn't panic, and she does what needs to be done to survive. She's female badass. Yes. And she is stone-cold badass, I will say that right there. Yes. I love the entire idea that because the gang members are using silencers that no one can hear the attack happening on the police station. And as we've said, it's already a very isolated location, but just that added level of detail that it's not really until later that our heroes start shooting back that there's any chance that anyone outside is going to hear. And I love the shot where we first see just how many gang members there are as they're just kind of swarming through the shadowed trees. You realize there's like, what, 30, 40 people out there. It's an army. You'll notice that the gang does everything they can to not only isolate the station house, but to isolate the entire area. They shut off the power for not just that block, but like for blocks around so that nobody will be. Well, no, actually, they said the streetlights were still on streetlights. It's the phones that they took down for the block. But yeah, I think they just cut the power to the main building and then cut the phone lines They They took out a pole from what we hear. Yeah. What do we think about the Cholo, the declaration of war? It's so weird to see that because it has a completely different meaning now. Yeah, and then what I love is that, yeah, it's the jar of their shared blood. And then what I love is that we get this mysterious declaration, and it's not until like 15, 20 minutes later that Wells tells us what it means. So, I mean, we kind of know already that it's a declaration of war, but then just to have him reinforce that it means to the death. Mm-hmm. This is the only communication that the gang members have with the people inside the station house. Exactly. Blood and words written on a sheet. And they keep pulling back and they keep attacking and they keep pulling back and... That actually I like because it shows that not only are they ruthless, but there is an intelligence to them. There is strategy to them. And that, I think, it leads into the next section. Yes. The gang opens fire again and begins to storm the windows and doors. Bishop cracks open a box of shotguns and sends Lee back to free Wells and Wilson. The prisoners arm themselves, as does Lee despite taking a bullet to the arm, and help Bishop fight the gang members off until Street Thunder pulls back. 
As our heroes once again take stock of the aftermath, they find that Julie died from a stray bullet and that the gang cleared away the bodies and broken glass from their siege, leaving the station a lightless building with a relocated sign out front. Furthermore, our heroes are almost out of ammo. So I think this is probably where we're getting into the scene where you want to talk about with Lee, right? Right. This is, um, Lee takes a bullet to the arm and they're giving the prisoners guns and there's a great standoff between Lee and Wells. And Lee's just walking up to him and just saying, put the gun down. You don't want to do this. I've already been shot once today and I don't want to do it a second time. I'm not going to do it again. And Wells not only backs down, Lee looks at the gun and it's a great one line. It's like, after all that, it wasn't even loaded. (laughs) Yes. And that interestingly suggests a bit about Lee that she not only knows how to use guns, but that she can recognize when a gun isn't loaded. Well, she's she's a secretary, but she's a secretary for a police station. So she she obviously knows a bit about stuff. And I love just how, you know, she takes a bullet to the arm and it obviously probably severed a tendon or something because she can't use that arm at all. But she doesn't flinch. Like, exactly. Yeah. She just, she not only doesn't flinch, but she just doesn't really make a big deal about the fact that she has a lifeless arm here. I mean, she's loading a gun one-handed. She's taking th- people on one-handed. She, it, it doesn't stop her. That there is a woman who probably already has children. <laughs> that was said as kind of a joke, but I am deathly serious. You want to see a, a woman be completely badass and deal with pain? Someone that's already dealt with childbirth. Yes. And this is kind of the start of a bond between her and Napoleon. And you get the great bit where she finally gives him a smoke. Mm-hmm. I'm like, <laughs> he finally gets a smoke. I just love that the silent bit of her just putting the cigarette in his mouth and she's still one handed and she lights a match one handed while it's in the matchbook. It's just this great flick and a flare of fire as she lights it. And you know how she did that? How? Because she's fucking awesome. <laughs> that's how she did that it was awesome we don't need to explain it yeah i love that she takes the bullet to the arm and the thing is she shoots the guy and kills the guy who shot her in the arm (laughs) yes stone cold badass and then we get that great bit where the gang members are still bearing down on her from having broken in the back and she gets the cell open and we see wilson actually napoleon in a fight with one of the gang members and that great bit where he snaps the guy's arm and (laughs) yeah Yes, it's like the beginning of the Steven Seagal movement here. Well, you know what the thing is? That fight could have seemed cheesy, if not for the fact that it didn't seem so staged. Mm -hmm. It felt fairly brutal. Yes. And realistic, as opposed to, you know, wherein you get to movies that come out now and all the fight scenes are so choreographed that I'm like, well, that doesn't even look remotely Especially the brutal ones, like, for example, Watchmen. Yes. Where the brutality was just so over the top. The fight was about the brutality instead of the brutality just adding to the fight. Right. But what I love here is that there's a great dichotomy. I keep using that term, but this movie is about contrast. You have the normal and the peaceful, and then you have the brutal and the quick and the fast and the... You can't even really understand what's going on. Things are going... Too much motion's going on. It's almost that these civilized people, with quotation marks around civilized are being forced to accept their brutality and fighting back, and the brutal people are being forced to accept their compassionate aspects in order to help others who need it. And what you have, especially with the contrast between Lee and Julie, where Lee takes a bullet... And keeps going. She keeps going, but she takes a bullet and she doesn't even register. Julie takes a bullet, it doesn't register to the rest of us until much later. Yeah. It's understated. It's an after-the-fact kind of a revelation there. They don't dwell on it. They don't show her writhing in pain or, or screaming or anything. It's just that she's down, and we don't realize that she's down until later. Yes. 
And I do want to point out that Julie is, uh, this is just a bit of a tangent, that Julie is played by Nancy Loomis, who we'll be seeing in both Halloween and The Fog. She was another one of those recurring actors that Carpenter used. We also have The Gang, which is... They're, oh, yeah. they're, they're so many shots of just the gang just pouring into windows and then being blown away. And then they pull back and they pull back and you look out and they're not even there. There's no bodies. There's no glass. There's yes. the, uh, they cleaned the, it all up. Yeah. They cleaned it all up. The truck's been repositioned. They took the prison bus and then they positioned the cars so they would all look like a normal street. And pay attention to that truck that got repositioned. That comes into play later. Oh, is that the truck? One of them, I'm pretty sure, is the truck. Okay. And then, of course, we have the great bit where Napoleon gets a shotgun in his hands, takes out a prisoner, and then there's just this shared look between him and Bishop where Bishop just suddenly thinks, did I make the right choice in giving this guy a gun? And yeah, it's just such mayhem. People are just pouring in these windows and let's just shoot, 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 shoot. It's such a great scene. Bishop comes up with a plan to use a basement sewer access to get to a car down the street and drive off for help. Since he can't hotwire a car, one of the prisoners will have to do it. Wells loses the bet. He makes it out to the car, gets it running, and races off, but a gang member sits up in the back seat and shoots him dead. See, that's what I mean. They, they moved the car, mm-hmm. and they made it just conspicuous enough so that they would try to make a break for it. I, mm-hmm. Well, I didn't pick up that that car was involved in the earlier scene, because it's next to the police station as opposed to being the ones across the street. But it's right bathed in the streetlight. Okay. It's by right itself. There. It's very conspicuous. Yeah, and then I just love that great reveal of the gang member just sits up in the back seat and shoots him. You feel like he's made it, he's made it. Everyone in the police station's like, oh, he's made it, he's going, he may not send help for the rest of us, but at least he's out kind of a thing. Like, Bishop is even kind of resigned to the fact that they may have just let a prisoner loose, but at least he's free. Yes. And then somebody sits up. And then I love that Bishop doesn't want to accept it at first. That he's like, well, maybe it was just some broken glass. And then yeah, and then he just it, starts punching things. <laughs> I love that it's fate decided by potato. <laughs> yes, that the game of so potato. Great. Yeah. I have to say that the majority of this movie takes place at night. And it is shot remarkably well for a movie that's taking place at night and that like 50% of my notes are not I can't see anything. Right. It's not too dim, but it's not overly lit to the point where it feels like, you know, the really bad day for night photography where it's obviously they're just pretending it's darker than it is. It is a very great use of street lights coming through the windows. They play with some beautiful blacks in the frame. Yes. The shadows and just some amazing use of color in this. I I keep mentioning the the shots, the, the film is just it's just art. We're watching art in motion right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carpenter, he is a master of framing the camera and using empty space to highlight his focus. And when you add shadows and sharp colors to the equation, it makes it even better. You know, one of my favorite things about this movie, especially with all these sequences here with the dirty gunfights, the rapid action stuff right here, all of these shots, these hold up. These have aged well. The only bit of this movie that hasn't aged well is the shot of the other cops in the cruiser mm, where you can tell that it's, well, I mean, where you can tell that it's like one of those backdrop kind of things. And it's, it's, Oh, I it, never, I never saw that it was a backdrop. Yeah, it did but I'm pretty. But, so, <laughs> well, it may not, it, so, sometimes I think things are a backdrop and they weren't, well, it wasn't rear screen. I want to say, I think it was probably one of those tow cars. But even then, I mean, that's a style of filmmaking with the car and the camera there that is extremely dated. Like, you can Mm -hmm. exactly tell when this was shot, but the entire rest of this movie, it holds up extremely well. Well, what I want to say is it still feels like it's from the 70s. 
it still kind of has that grit to it, but it's still done in a way that even to a modern audience, they would still find it striking. Right. It's still of its era, yet it's done so well that it still works. It's timeless, is yes, the word. timeless. There you go. Uh, and then, of course, this also has my favorite line. None of you are going to wish me good luck? Yeah. <laughs> good luck. Look at that. Two cops wishing me good luck. <laughs> and then that he's kind of our least sympathetic character, and yet all of our hopes hang on him. Yeah, I still wanted him to make it. Yeah, so you want him to survive, not so much for his sake, but because he holds everyone else's fate in his hands. And you do get the sense that he probably will stop and call for help. He's, he's not oh, like no, a bad guy. I wanted guy. him to survive for his sake because I thought he was awesome. Okay. Because he was mouthing off to the cops. So <laughs> The cops were dicks, okay? Yeah, and I love that they have this magical basement sewer access. You know what? If it if well, the movie maybe sucked, some older buildings yeah. did have that, yeah, yeah, and it's like, and if the movie sucked, we would question it. But we like the movie, so we're like, yeah, True. sewer access, why not? What would have been nice is if they just set the building on fire and then hid in the sewer and then just kind of waited for the gang to go away. <laughs> I don't know. And like just hanging out in the sewer. Yeah, I don't know. That would have taken away the entire drama of the movie, but still. <laughs> yeah. A pair of cops have been cruising the nearby area, looking into reports of potential gunfire as well as a telephone line repair truck that's failed to check in. They find the repairman dead and call in backup. So, other cops on the scene. Other cops on the scene. See, what I really find great about this segment is that it almost reminds me of Home Alone 3 in that... (laughs) Yes, I know. Um, (laughs) In that there was that section where they deliberately blocked off the street and made it look like a driveway. And so anybody that was driving past completely missed it, even if they were looking for it. Hmm. The fact of the matter is, is that, as we've mentioned, this place is extremely isolated. There's nobody around. Power's gone out. Telephone's gone out. Now that there are gunshots being reported and these cops are looking for them, they can't find them. Exactly, and I love how they just verbally dismiss even the idea of let's let's go check out the police station because no one's there. They moved. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like especially frustrating. But what I also like is that as isolated as this area is, there's still people hearing the gunshots and, and are calling it in. Well, there was well, one cop that wanted to go back, and then the other one's like, uh, no. There's nobody there. Right. Yeah, I'm not going by the police station. I hate those bastards. They are mean to me once. And then I love how they keep trying to call in for additional units and a helicopter, and everyone's busy. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, well, I'm not going then. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the dead repairman. Yeah, that they was really. Killing. They Well, the funny thing is, it's like they needed a dead repairman before they were like, oh, maybe we should do something. Like, well, could they, you not have thought to do something before? Well, again, they didn't know where it was coming from. They didn't even realize that there was something going on aside from some reports of stray gunfire. They were going around looking for something and not finding it. That was the whole thing of the gang clearing off the street and clearing off the bodies and all the broken glass and everything. So even if... Though they didn't clear uh, away the repairman. They didn't clear away the repairman. But even if the cop car had driven right past the police station, they wouldn't have seen anything. Exactly. Well, our heroes probably would have fired off a few shots just to get the attention. Yeah, if you have someone shooting when you're in the... Like, had they actually gone by the police station, they might have noticed, hey, you know, those windows are actually shot to hell. Am I the only one who is actually expecting that either right before he had the chance to call it in or right after the two cops are going to get swarmed and killed by gang members? Oh, I totally expected that. I was I was surprised when they didn't. 
Mm-hmm. I totally thought as soon as they found the uh, dead guy, I was like, and now they die. And they didn't. I was like, well, well played, movie. Right. Well, it is moving us into the final climax, so I, I don't know that it would really been necessary. But I wouldn't have been surprised. Well, what's great is that there's the ambiguity of like, is this going to happen or is it not going to happen? That's what's that's And what's it's so almost surprising that. in that it didn't go the expected route. Because mm-hmm, everything's gone to hell up until now. Why not this? Exactly. Our heroes are out of time and almost out of ammo. They hunker into the basement for a last stand, Bishop tying an acetylene tank and magnesium flares to a pipe at the end of the hall near the stairs. The gang members siege, pouring into the building and setting it on fire with Molotov cocktails. Wilson and Lee do their best to fend off the gang members while Bishop tries to shoot the acetylene tank. Smoke is blocking his vision, but he finally hits it with his last shot. This is where we get full-on zombie apocalypse slash this is the Alamo kind of a thing where it's kind of a cross between the two. You've got the gang members just unending coming in from the woodworks, a constant stream, an assault on Precinct 13, if you will. And me not near my snare drum. (laughs) (laughs) I really love this sequence. Just the fury of the gang members as they're just pouring in and pounding away at the cops. You actually do hear pings of shots as the gang members do open fire, but you almost get the sense that the gang members are probably almost out of ammo too, because it's pretty much melee combat. Well, the point of a siege is for each side to wear down the other side. Going back into medieval eras is that there were sieges that didn't work where the inhabitants of the fortress or the castle just waited out the assault until the opposing army just ran out of stuff to throw out of them or ran out of people and everything and either got hit with the retaliation or just wandered away. Or cows. It's like this is the last stand of both sides. It's the last thing they can throw into it. Especially when Bishop and Wilson and Lee are uh, hunkering down in the basement corridor. They've got nothing there, nowhere to go. And like seven or eight shots between them. Right. And yet she still has her gun and is holding off that sewer entrance. Mm -hmm. And Bishop shooting the acetylene tank. I mean, it's kind of convenient that they just happen to have an acetylene tank that was laying around in in evidence. But it works. Well, it it makes sense that that's the kind of thing that would be in evidence, especially in a gang town in Los Angeles. It does make sense. And I love how we finally get one more instance of the uh, asking Napoleon where his name comes from. And once again, not finding out. (laughs) Am I the only one who thought that Napoleon and Lee under other circumstances would have totally made out at some point? No, Probably. that was that was subtext throughout that, yeah. that whole segment that was rapidly and becoming text. Well, the thing is, they had, like, really good eye chemistry or whatever well, you want to call it. she was the only one who'd give them a damn cigarette. <laughs> well, they yeah, were both just... badasses, and as, as we've seen in the first part of the movie, Wilson kind of has his own code of honor to him and is kind of, aside from being a murderer, kind of a decent guy. Both of them have a sense of decency, but they also don't flinch in the face of darkness. They have the decency and they have the ruthlessness. They come at it from opposite directions, obviously. They're both willing to do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a bit about Lawson. Lawson is still pretty much in shock and hasn't really contributed anything other than being there. But we still get the great bit from Bishop where he's like, we have to protect this man. I don't know what he did. I don't know why they're after him. But it's my job to protect this man. What's great is that this whole thing was started by him. And he ran to the police station because that's where you're instinctively trained to go when you're in trouble. You learn about this in kindergarten, that the policeman is your friend. 
And yet they set up in the beginning that he's still wary of cops when his daughter mm -hmm. tells him to go to the police for help. He has nowhere else to turn. I just said this, but this whole thing could have been avoided if he wasn't in the picture. And yet the actions he did that caused the gang members to pursue him were still justified by their actions in killing his daughter. Mm -hmm. What I love about this film is just the way that everything just falls into place leading to this clash of forces. And none of it seems over the top. None, none of it seems contrived. It just seems to be like a natural flow. Feels like these could be real incidences that could happen and collectively lead to things spiraling out of control. I'm going to remember that you said this when we get to that second half of this. <laughs> <laughs> the last of Street Thunder runs off as police backup finally swarms in. The cops reach the basement hall, which is littered with dozens of dead gang members, scorched from the acetylene explosion. At the end of the hall, our survivors are still alive. I love that four people go into these last 20 minutes and four people still walk out in terms of our survivors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You almost expect that someone's going to have a final sacrifice or something. It's kind of refreshing that nobody does. What's great is that, again, completely realistically, the cops come to haul Wilson back to jail. And they're starting to treat him like some scumbag criminal. And Bishop stands up and... Uh, He's at least going to let him walk out of the building a free man. Walk out of the building with <laughs> dignity. Because yeah. he, he had so many chances to run, to turn on everybody. And he did the right thing. He did what was necessary. He stood by everybody. And he got them all out. I even just love the last look that Bishop shares with Lee. Nothing else is ever really going to be able to happen between those two because of the situation he now has to return to. But they were there. They shared that moment, this incident. Nothing can take that away from them, except the firing squad or whatever they did in California back in the 70s. I just love the shot of this hallway filled with the corpses of the dead gang members. You get to the end of it and it's smoke and you don't know what's waiting there. The smoke clears and our survivors are still alive. It was just a great reveal. Mm -hmm. And then I just even love the shot of there's still gang members who are alive who just take off into the shadows and run away. Because they're wusses. Yeah, not so much that, you know, they're setting up a sequel, but just that they've lost it's their done. force. They've lost their power. And the cops are here. Now they're just kids on the street again. There's nothing left to do. It's easy to stand up against cops when there's a handful of them. I like the ending. I like, well, why don't we just go ahead and talk about the overall film? Uh, we haven't talked about the music. dun da 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 dun it sounds like something you expect in like an arcade game, you know? It has that kind of synth repetitive feel. It's synthesized. It's it, synth, it, but it's not like the Terminator. If when I watch the Terminator now, the very synth soundtrack just grates on me. But this one, I'm like, oh, I can roll with this. At one point, I think I wrote down that I love the music. It sounds like it shouldn't work even to modern ears. And yet it's just such a nice, simple rhythm. It has such atmosphere to it. And once again, that's the genius of John Carpenter, he who cannot delegate, he who does everything himself, and yet it's a complete vision in his head, and then he brings it out, and it's a completely fully formed thing at the end, and it all works together. And of course, then there's the disco version released in Italy. God damn it, I still can't get that out of my head. I have not heard that. Yeah, I sent you a link to it. Okay, well then maybe my brain just decided it was going to pretend it didn't hear that. Of I've been humming this at work over the last week. It's extremely catchy. I totally want to throw on some bell bottoms and go dance under a disco ball to it. You and my fiancé, seriously. Yeah, you guys are going to have to find a disco ball. Oh, no, my fiancé will have it. Trust me. <laughs> 
Oh. Well, Kev, can I borrow your fiance for the assault on Precinct 13 disco dance? Um, we'll see. Okay. $5. You'll have to call in with uh, constant updates if, if she's okay. Yes, I'll uh, patent the uh, dance move, you gotta smoke, and she'll do the uh, the one-armed secretary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, you know how to make a holy bartender? <laughs> <laughs> a holy bartender. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so overall, do we still pretty much all support this movie and recommend this movie? This movie is now my official Valentine's Day movie. (laughs) Wow. It used to be Fast and the Furious. Well, for this to supplant that marvelous piece of filmmaking there, that's got to be high praise. Hey, I like the Fast and the Furious. I prefer Fast and Furious to to the Fast and the Furious. Yeah, but that just came out. Okay, I'm just going to put my hipster glasses on and say it's been old since French Connection. (laughs) And yet this film is about as old as French Connection, and it never gets old. It's timeless. It really does have that timeless quality. I mentioned that, you know, shot for shot, aside from the uh, two cops in the cruiser, which that style of filmmaking is extremely dated, and you can tell exactly what decade and sometimes even what year those are, are made. Everything else completely holds up as a movie that would have been made yesterday. And yet it is still very much of its era, but it doesn't date itself. It's timeless. If you watch it today, it would feel like a modern period movie. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do we want to move on to the remake? Do we have to? Yeah, I'm with Kevin here. Do we absolutely have to? Can we just talk about it some more? We can, yeah, we, 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 just... we can pretend that this is I Hate Love original movies. Well, would you rather spend month? an hour talking about Ghosts of Mars? Yes. Point. I'd rather talk about Ghosts of Mars. Actually, <laughs> actually, I think Noel just made his point, so. <laughs> I'd right. rather talk about Ghosts of Mars in this remake, but whatever. Well, we'll talk about it a little bit here at the end. Well, you will, because you watched it. Ah, I did. So I get to talk about it, and you guys get to say, why did you watch that? Uh... No, I no longer <laughs> ask why you watched that, okay? I just go with it. I'm like, it's no. <laughs> well, let's move on to the 2005 Assault on Precinct 13, directed by Jean-Francois Richet and written by James DeMonaco. Woo. Evie, do you recommend this movie? No, I don't. Let me qualify that. I don't recommend it unless you have absolutely no plans to ever watch the original, at which point, fine, you can watch it, whatever. But otherwise, no, I don't recommend it. On Twitter a few weeks ago, I called Sucker Punch Inception if it was made by idiots. Well, the 2005 remake is like what the 1976 version looks like when made by idiots. I mean, as a siege film, it's acceptable, but as a remake, it feels just soulless. Oh, and shut up, John Leguizamo! (laughs) John Leguizamo played John Leguizamo. He always plays John Leguizamo, and sometimes he works, and here he didn't. And And interestingly enough, he's wearing almost exactly the same outfit as Judd Nelson in Breakfast Club. I saw your tweet about that, and I was just like, that's what happened to John Bender! And then half the time... (laughs) He became John Leguizamo. I was actually going to say that John Leguizamo was playing Kim Coates because Kim Coates was busy playing one of the cops, but nobody's going to get that joke. No, no. Kim Coates played the John Leguizamo character in Battlefield Earth. I didn't see oh, Battlefield God. Earth because I value my sanity. You are totally right. I didn't. I, I don't know why I didn't make that connection. Kevin, do you recommend this movie? I'm going to go with a definite 
tentative only if you like these kinds of movies. And I'm going with that because it very much is a film of its time where a lot of the cop movies in the mid 2000 era was about these tortured cop souls that have lost everything and need some way to continue and impossible situations that are punctuated with impressive technology. It's very much a movie of its time, much like the original was very much a movie of its time. In this case, that's not necessarily a good thing. In comparison to the original, which you're going to have to make the comparison to the original just by nature of it itself, it definitely pales. If I hadn't seen the original first, I would have sat through it and enjoyed it on a purely popcorn basis. So, a tentative maybe. Okay. I recommend this movie. That does not surprise me. So shocked, I nearly fell out of my chair. There are moments of clumsiness, bits of silly plotting, the final climax in the woods doesn't really work much at all, some of the characters are annoying, some of the strategy of the villains is a little odd, but I really like the cast, I really like the characters. There's a lot of sequences in this film that I really like, that I think are really well put together on a technical level, and actually do have some good moments of human connection. What I like most of all is that this is what I wish more remakes would do of instead of just doing a shot-for-shot retelling of the original, strip it down to its core story, this one just about cops and criminals who have to team up to fend off a siege, and put your own spin on it and do your own thing with it. Find your own way of telling it. It is not as successful as the original film. That I will not argue. It is not as clean or as crisp or as unforgettable or just just as perfect of an experience as the original film is. But it's still a good popcorn flick. It's still a good way to just sit down and kill a couple hours. I'm not saying it's one of those shut your brain off and it'll work for your films. There's actually some really clever stuff, really intelligent stuff going on and some stupid things. I would say it's very comparable to the Manchurian Candidate remake that we covered a few months ago. I appreciate it for trying to go out and do its own thing, even though it's only partially succeeding at it. So I recommend this movie. See, but I think you're giving this movie a lot of credit just because it tried, but... Oh, no, I genuinely liked a lot of how it turned out. There's so, there's bits in it that I think are really stupid and, and don't work, but there's a lot of it that I genuinely think is good filmmaking and good cast and, and good writing. Well, see, the thing that I have with this, and, and I definitely acknowledge what you're saying there in that it's trying to do things in a different way, especially in regards to the new main characters, the Bishop and the Wilson XPs here. The problem I mostly had with this is that they were doing way too much to put so many different concepts in that they really overloaded themselves. There was too much going on. It was five pounds of plot in a 10-pound bag. This is the opposite direction. This is 10 pounds of plot in a little dinky sippy cup that is bursting at the seams because there's too many things going on and they drop a bunch of plot threads here. I don't know if I entirely agree with that. That's what I got. I agree there's a lot in the setup, but I did think a lot of it wove together well. And a lot of the stuff getting dropped happens as a result of deaths that I actually found sometimes to be kind of shocking. And I don't know. I just, I liked it. I thought it all worked together. I don't think there was too much plot, but I don't know. But I see where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. Evie, did you have anything you wanted to add before we move on? Shut up, John Leguizamo. (laughs) I think I've stated it, but it feels like it needs to be restated. Smiley says Smiley wants to go and see this movie. (laughs) Smiley's going to get a punch in the face. All right. 
We open on Jake Roenick, a cop in an undercover drug sting that goes bad, leaving him with a bullet in the leg, two dead suspects, and two dead partners. Eight months later, he's addicted to painkillers and working a desk job as a sergeant in Detroit's Precinct 13. Most of the cops head out for the night to celebrate New Year's Eve, leaving Jake, the soon-to-retire Sergeant Jasper O'Shea, and Secretary Iris Ferry to finish shutting down and packing up the station in their relocation to a new building. Jake is also stuck with yet another appointment with department therapist Alex Sabian, who feels Jake is hiding behind his injured leg because of his guilt over the botched bust. She leaves, only to return to the station after her car gets stuck in heavy snows. So let's go ahead and talk about Ethan Hawke as Jake. My first note is shut up, Ethan Hawke. So that's clearly just a really great way to introduce me to a character. Let's go ahead and talk about the opening scene where we have his entire drug sting that goes bad. Because that's almost an entirely different story than, than the rest of the film. Yeah, I didn't need that. I didn't need this whole entire opening scene. They could have just cut two and had something happened. I don't need to know what it was, but the movie felt the need to tell me. I kind of appreciate that it was trying to work up this background for Ronick in that he's haunted by his past and that's why he is a, a pill-popping reject who doesn't go beyond his station, literally, and basically tries to lethal weapon his way out of his psychotherapy session. Only with sex. I appreciate that they tried to do that. I still think it was a little bit superfluous in that because that could have just been worked around in five lines of dialogue if they needed to. Well, it could have been five lines of dialogue, but, but seeing him encountering the deaths of his partners, I thought, was had a lot more impact, especially then when you see him later. And, and it also nailed home the, the idea that this is a place where the police department is kind of broken where they're not always going to be there to help you when you need them. You've got the, um, what's the appropriate word? Loose morald secretary in thigh highs and fishnets. I thought she was going to die. The uh, aforementioned pill-popping Ethan Hawkman. Mm -hmm. And Brian Dennehy. Who's the father figure who's a week away from retirement. <laughs> I, I was like, he is dead. It's like, I'm going to retire. I'm like, you're dead. The casting of Brian Dennehy kind of pulled me out of my immersion in this because it's Brian Dennehy, and Brian Dennehy tends to get typecast. Because the last thing I saw Brian Dennehy in was a um, biopic on John Wayne Gacy. So <laughs> I kind of spoiled myself with, oh, he's going to turn out to be the bad guy, isn't he? Also, he's an O'Shea. Yeah, and those people are just jerks. Except for you. Oh, shit, that's me, too. <laughs> What I also liked about the opening scene, if we can return back to that for just one second, is I like how they shot it in the hot summer to contrast the snowy winter that they, the rest of the film is set in. I will give a lot of credit to this film for relocating it. If, if you're going to relocate it to Detroit, put it in the dead of winter during a blizzard to give a more reasonable isolation in this time period because it's not a period piece simply bind the nature of technology here it's a lot harder to isolate something just by cutting the power off and cutting off the phones and i love how they even drop the line that the computers have already been relocated to the new building so that's an area of communication yeah. they don't have as well right so but having them stuck in the blizzard that actually is a really good way to do that and, and to update that so i got i gotta give a lot of credit to the movie for doing that that mm -hmm. impressed me a lot and then you got cops going out for New Year's. You have the cops inside are still, you know, celebrating a little bit and having a few drinks. So they're probably not in the clearest state of mind. And I like that. 
Let's get to Maria Bello as Dr. Alex Sabian. I liked her. She was kind of, well, at the beginning, I liked her. I love how she's so fed up with Jake because he keeps doing this shtick about how she just keeps showing up because she wants to sleep with him. And she knows completely that that's bullshit, that he's just trying to distract from the issue of he's depressed, he's guilty, he doesn't want to deal with any of his problems. He's lethal weaponing her. The problem is that I've seen Lethal Weapon and I know how it works. And this is not working. So. Well, the problem being that Ethan Hawke is not Mel Gibson. I have he respect not... for the Ethan Hawke man. Yeah, I like Ethan Hawke. I don't get the sense that he's entirely trying to play Riggs here, but... <laughs> I like Ethan Hawke in, like, three movies. And then, of course, I do like the plot element of how her car got stuck in the snow, so she has to come marching back in her slinky New Year's Eve dress. Well, of course it got stuck in the snow. I referred to her in my notes from this point on as Dr. Party Dress. <laughs> awesome. Now, am I the only one who thought this? Because, Kevin, when you said that the first one had sort of played out like a zombie movie. With this one, when I was watching it, it sort of plays out like a slasher movie. Kind of a cross between a slasher movie and almost a bit of a um, war parable where you've got, because uh, 2005 was still in the middle of Iraq, and so you had all these issues of uh, internal conflicts yeah, but I don't think this movie was clever enough for that. You also have more precise individualized strikes as opposed to en masse assaults. I think there's really only that one big... Well, maybe we should save this until we until we get into the attacks. Mm -hmm. But the only real major assault we have is when they open up with the minigun. Everything else is more precise of getting into a specific entrance and going after specific targets. Surgical strikes. Yes. Uh, one other thing I also kind of... I also kind of like the nice little bit where Jake steals his file from the doctor. Oh, that mm -hmm. was so... I, and then she I comes back lame. and boom, his, she knows he's been reading her, the file. And The two are so pissed off at each other that you know they're building a romance between them. Well, it that's was... my problem is they're trying to build this romance and I'm like, they have the chemistry of like two rocks. Exactly. This is, this is a bit of the Hollywood plotting that I think was a little unnecessary, a little bit much. You're right. There's no real chemistry between the two of them. You don't really see them as a couple, which kind of lessens the impact of where she goes down the road. But it is, I still like little touches. I, I like that he's an asshole. I didn't. I was like, oh, well, you're just going to be a, no, good. He's an yeah. asshole who's going to be forced to rise to the occasion. My first note is shut up, Ethan Hawke. So he never really <laughs> came back from shut up, Ethan Hawke. Okay. It really is a bit too formulaic, although you got to give, give credit to, uh, again, Ethan Hawke and What's-Her-Face, Dr. Party Dress. Um, if they're going to be cliches, they're going to do it right. It's like the sergeant in Avatar. Uh, who Go all out was, and just be the greatest sergeant in Avatar you can possibly be. He, he if I'm going to be a cliche, a I'm going to be the best cliche ever. It, it worked for him because he, he was totally a two-dimensional character, but he played the hell out of that. Elsewhere, notorious crime lord Marion Bishop is finally caught after killing a man in her church. It turns out the man was an undercover cop belonging to the racketeering squad run by Captain Marcus Duval, and Bishop is loaded on a bus bound for a federal holding cell. Also on the bus are flashy counterfeiter Smiley, paranoid junkie wannabe crook Beck, and Anna, who was arrested as a gang member though she swears she's innocent and was mistaken for her sister. The bus starts skidding on the snowy road, so they decide to pull over to the nearest station for the night. Precinct 13. Here's the lesson I got from the introduction to Marion. I'm going to call him Marion, just so we don't have to confuse him with Bishop from the first film. Oh, Marion is a girl's name. I know, that's why I'm calling him Marion. Well, that that would be when Marian. you say, well, Marion ain't a girl. Here's the point about the introduction to Marion. When you stab someone with a pen in the neck in a church, and you try to prop them so they look like they're sleeping, 
take the pen out of their neck first. Well, so no, it's no surprise that like 10 seconds later spray. you hear screaming. You'd get arterial spray and that would kind of uh, also disturb yeah. the emotion. Well, they might yeah. think that it's like, you know, holy wine, a genuflection. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. It's I know. Just, by the way, the fact that no one's sitting beside them in that pew or what? Well, they, like, were in, they went to the back in of the, the church. way back. Have you been to uh, church in the middle of a blizzard? Oh, yeah, you go to a uh, church nope, during any time, you know, find yeah, a back row seat, and nobody looks back. that was a fairly packed church, except for back there. It was, it was fairly packed in the first half, and that's where everybody goes. In a big church, if not a lot of people go to church, it's going to be a very standard situation mm -hmm. where the church is almost empty. There's a huge church right by my grandfather's house, and it's a really, really small town. It used to mm -hmm. be bigger because it used to be a factory town, and now it's not a factory town anymore. So it's a huge church that really only normally gets the first third of the pews filled. Yeah. Okay, because, yeah, no, we've got a pretty big church out here, and it's usually pretty full when you go to, like, a service, so... Well, besides, you know, I mean, with RoboCop on the action, not a lot of people are going to be in church in Detroit. They're going to be not getting in the way of RoboCop. <laughs> yeah, but then why would RoboCop not be here to stop Marion? What's up with that? Because he's, he's a statue now in Detroit. Did you hear about that, actually? That was awesome. Well, that's because he was frozen by the blizzard in this film. Yes. You ever lick a lamppost? That's how RoboCop feels all winter long. <laughs> Anything we want to say about Marion? The crossword puzzle-loving crime lord of Detroit. It sets him up as a badass, and it sets him up as somebody completely ruthless. And he's also calm. But we don't get anything beyond that, which is the intention. We don't get anything until we actually have interactions with him in the prison. Whereas with his counterpart, Wilson, we get everything who he is in that first few minutes we see him in the jail. Yeah, no, exactly. And you'd almost think if they're going to go into this backstory of Jake and show his history, you'd think they'd almost do something similar with Marion. And instead you just have, he stabs a guy in the neck, shoots some shots into the air and gets arrested. They could have gone further in, into the cliche and made Ronick and Bishop old enemies that That would have been have, a little too far, but yeah. yeah I would they, have rather they that. They could have gone the one extra step, and I'm glad that they didn't go the one extra step there, but they really, really could have. I was expecting that to be the case, actually. See, Marion killed Jake's father, which led him to become a cop so that he could one day hunt down Marion. Yeah, this movie went everywhere else with the cliches. I'm surprised it didn't do this one. Oh, one other thing I wanted to point out. Did you catch what Jake's undercover name was in the opening yeah, scene? Yeah, I saw that. I was like, eh. Napoleon. Mm. Yeah, and he asked for a cigarette, and I swear I threw something at the TV. I was like, no, I hate when they're like, look, we referenced the movie with the title. Look. Exactly, but it's and not like, even with the context, which is like, Marion, his name is Bishop, but it has no real Well, it's because he's it. the black character there. His character was originally had an Italian name, and it was Fishburne's idea to call him Bishop. So we can blame him for that one. Lawrence well, Fishburne is not always in the same reality as the rest of us. Yeah. Don't like, you talk about Cowboy movie. Curtis that way, man. Cowboy <laughs> Curtis can kiss the fattest part of my ass. Seriously, look, was he doing this for a paycheck or was he doing this for like an actual job? I, I, I want to know. I think it's like Samuel L. Jackson and Snakes on the Plane where he was just doing it for fun. I don't get a sense that anyone in this film was really trying to just phone it in. No, I don't think they all like... pulled off what they were trying to do, but I think everyone was sincere in the in, in their performances. I oh, I, the performances wait. were really, really spot on. They did the best with the stuff they had to work with. Mm -hmm. I think Lawrence Fishburne was just here for the craft service and the paycheck. Like, seriously. I And so he could sit around doing crossword puzzles while pretending to act. 
Yeah. Just, He's Stanley um, from The Office. <laughs> they should have just cast Stanley from The Office. He would have been awesome. I would have totally believed him as Marion Bishop. <laughs> well, now, here's the question. When you guys watched this movie for the first time, did you realize up front that Gabriel Byrne was going to be the bad guy? Yep. No, actually, the, the I, um, I was expecting this to at least follow the plot point of the original movie. I had no idea that it turned out to be cops at the end. I was like, wait a minute, these are cops? What the hell? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. I, immediately, my first note is, hi, Gabriel Byrne. You owe someone a favor, don't you? And then my second note about him right afterwards is, you're going to be the bad guy in this movie, aren't you, Gabriel Byrne? And he was. Well, here's the thing, and I remember this from when the film came out, is the trailers give that twist away. Yeah, I didn't see the trailer. And I think the people making the film expected that to happen, so they don't draw out the twist on Gabriel Byrne that much. You only really have the one scene with him in the police station before it's revealed that he's the bad guy, so it's not like they're drawing out this mystery. It's more just we're waiting for him to come back into play, and by the time he comes back into play, he's revealed to be the villain. See, I think they did try to hide it a little bit and marketing decided to go a completely different way and just cut the trailer. They still reveal it before you get to the halfway point of the movie. So that, yeah, yeah, they're not not like trying to hinge the entire story on it. I will say it worked for me. I didn't have the reaction that they were expecting. It was more what the hell? Why would you do that? But it worked that I was surprised by it. I also liked uh, Curry Graham as his lieutenant. I just love the scene where they're going up the escalator and Bishop's men are coming down the escalator. And so his lieutenant just punches the guy in the face just just because they're looking at him. They were completely forgettable, I have to say. I completely even forgot they were in the movie until uh, other Bishop mentioned them again. I was like, wait a minute. Oh, you must have been talking about those guys that I I thought they were just going to be in there saying, oh, by the way, Precinct 13 has lost power. I thought that was the only point they were going to have in the movie. I thought that was their only role. Yeah, later on when one of them shows up, I'm like, oh, you're still in this? Oh, okay. He's like the only other one person they really build as a character. You, well, you only have... You only <laughs> have... Build as a character. You only have the three Duval. Three, you have Duval and two of his men who we really get to know to a degree. You get the one guy who got stabbed in the throat in a church, and that's just because he he was in a scene that somewhat left an impression. And then you have the lieutenant who keeps showing up. He's the one just always talking to Duval, and he's the one who, of course, has to fight Iris at the end. Meh. Ja Rule as Smiley. Why is he here? Smiley was kind of pointless. The only point for him was... He was more to have was... just another crook there. Yeah, he, it was... This is where the whole slasher thing came in, is I'm just like, oh, you're just fodder, aren't you? He was there just to have John Leguizamo have someone to try to escape with. They needed yeah. one other person. He was completely superfluous. It was like Ja Rule wanted to be in, in a movie. So he was like, oh, okay, I, why don't I do this? Because it's about... And he'll uh, talk in uh, the third person perspective. Yes. Fuck the police. <laughs> fuck, fuck, fuck the police. <laughs> ja Rule is the will I am of this movie. Although he wasn't bad. He was just He was super, he, superfluous. There was... I'm just glad to learn that the terrible rap song that plays over the end credits wasn't by him, surprisingly. That rap song cracked me up so hard. I was like, way to I summarize the name drop all the cast. Song. Yeah, and it summarizes the entire movie. I was like, thank you so much. Like that person was trying to be Will Smith in every one of Will Smith's movies. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't even that well written. It was just bad. That was like like literally copy and paste songwriting. He did it with magnetic poetry. That's how he wrote that song. Okay, so John Leguizamo is Beck. I am so happy. John Leguizamo as John Leguizamo. 
Yeah. Yeah, he was taken to about as skittery of a degree oh. as you can. He was so grating on me. I'm like, yo, bish, 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 bish. I like the idea of the hero worship that he has for Bish, where he's this desperately wannabe hoodlum who's like an absolute failure at everything. But they they overdid it. They overplayed it. They turned him into the parody. Exactly. And then we have Aisha Hines as Anna. She's a girl. I like how she said, I want to know what the funk it is because she's black. Get it? See, it's funny because she's black. Yeah. I liked her character because she was kind of the ambiguous. You don't really know if she is a criminal who's lying or if she was someone who was innocently picked up on the street. This is a city in which it could be either one. But she was she... trying too hard to be a cliche. They were overdoing the uh, the Black Hood streetwise thug stereotypes a bit much. Well, see, oh, no. The it's the popo. <laughs> well, see, here's the problem. Yeah. Is that you've got Beck, you've got Smiley, and you've got Anna. You don't need those three characters. You only need one. And they took, like, one character and separated well, it to three. And I didn't need those three. I needed one. Well, you need Beck for the one escape that fails. And, and I, I think, didn't need I think the escape either. We'll get to the escape. Oh, Anna does the Wells bit as far as in the car. Well, but you have the two escapes that fail. You have the one that was the poorly planned one that fails. And then you have the good planned one that ends up failing as well. Uh, good plan. <laughs> Quotation marks, please. Yes. Well, to use the bad plan as a, as a distraction, go with it. Um, what I liked about her performance as Anna is that, yes, it was a badly written role in terms of the dialogue they gave her, but I didn't think the character was that bad, and I thought she played it very well and, and gave her character a lot of strength. I feel really bad for the actress that she had to play this part. The, yeah, the dialogue was really bad. Like, but again, there she played actors- the hell out of it. Yes. Yeah, but again, you can only do so much with a really shitty part. That's like I said, all these all these actors, they're given, in my opinion, two-dimensional roles. It's just that they play it really well. I think there's depth to the char- the concept of the characters. I don't think the characters are always written that well, but the actors really do latch on to whatever depth those characters have and really play it for all that's worth. What I think they did is that they spent a lot of time developing Jake as a character, but then they were just like, okay, you get bare bones for all these other people. Oh, I disagree. In... I, I, I disagree. I think they all are developed. Uh... I think all the characters are developed and have depth. It's just some of them follow the formulas and some of them are just badly written. Yeah, Anna's depth is that she may or may not be a criminal. That's it. But I like that. And then she's black. Yeah, and then she's black. That's it. No, but I like the ambiguity that that adds because this is a city where you could believe that an innocent person would be arrested and yet she's a person who you don't know if she genuinely is innocent or not. So even oh, by no, the I end of the film... I never believed she was innocent. I never believed that she had a sister. Well, I like that they left it ambiguous so you could make your own decision as to whether she was telling the truth and she, exactly. and she just knew it because of osmosis or if she actually was a gang member who was trying to plead innocence. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only real thing that we know that she can do is hotwire a car. That's it. Again, fire a has... 1920s Tommy gun. Well, that doesn't Again. really take a whole lot of training to shoot that at someone who's standing right across the room from you. It does take a lot to keep it steady. Well, no one, no street hood, even in the modern day, is going to be training how to fire a 1920s Tommy gun. Yes, and yet she does a fairly good job with the 1920s Tommy gun. So. She hits him with one out of how many shots that are fired from it. Well, those things were never really accurate. It's a spray and Yeah, exactly. Kind of she anyway. just manages to hit one of the areas that's not armored. Not not through accuracy, just through spraying. 
through what? sheer sheer volume of bullets per square inch. Exactly. Yeah, no, I never believed that because I mean honestly well, but that's to get... you, but it's it's done as an ambiguous thing so that everyone can kind of look at it their own way and that's just how you looked at it. As no, an individual. but I mean, they're being transferred to jail, right? Which means that she's already been arraigned for something. No, they're being like, transferred to holding because they're pending trials. Mm -hmm. But weren't they already in holding? No, they, well, they were, they're being transferred to a federal holding. They were uh, in transit from the uh, police house. From where they uh, were arrested to where they're going to be held for trial. To where they're going to be held for trial. Yeah, that's, that's actually standard procedure. Yeah. Okay, cause, so they haven't even been arraigned yet. Right, they've just been picked up off the street. Oh, okay. All of these guys were probably arrested in the last 24 hours. Although they should have left them at the precinct that they were held at for the blizzard and uh, over the holiday because it's a blizzard and a holiday, yeah. uh, but then you wouldn't have a movie. Right, and then of course, you know, as the bus is getting on the snow, you have the mysterious SUV following it like 10 feet away from behind it. Yeah, no that one SUV sees it. was so stealth. I was like, seriously? Conspicuous, conspicuous, Yeah. You guys are supposed to be professionals, right? No? Very, very quiet. <laughs> Yes, it's it's making the little tiptoe boinks. <laughs> I'm so still, no one can see me. While the cops are celebrating the new year, two masked men armed with silencers break into the building and head for Bishop. They're discovered and escape, shooting the two transport guards in the process, both of whom quickly die of their wounds. There's a small army of men surrounding the building outside. The phones are cut, the radio and cell frequencies are blocked, the power goes out, laser sights dance over the windows from hidden snipers, and a brick is tossed through the window with the name Bishop written on it. Jasper figures they're Bishop's men here to help their boss break free. I like how both films use silencers. Mm -hmm. mm. I like that they carried that over. Well, there's, well that's there's... the only way to show how there wouldn't be any way for them to hear gunshots. They do a lot with scare tactics in this scene, and it's kind of over the top. Although, once you get to the end of the movie, you kind of realize that they're trying to do this without letting them know what's going on. Their identity isn't known, so there's no real reason to need to kill the other people inside. All they want is Bishop. It's once Bishop starts talking that they say, well, we need to silence everybody. Exactly. Now, did anyone notice the uh, actor who plays Gil? Oh, yeah, Dorian Harewood. He's eight ball from Full Metal Jacket. Come on. I haven't seen that in a long time. Oh, dude, you guys. I am now officially the manliest person on this podcast. Yeah, it is interesting how quickly both films get rid of all the prison transport guards. Though this one, they at least take a few minutes to die. Yeah, Gil took a while to expire. Okay, now when they put out the lights and everything in the... um, Put out the lights, cancel the phone, and then I love the bit where... The cell phones and radio signals get blocked, and the people inside realize that, wait, that takes some pretty high technology to do. Oh, I hated that. This is when I knew we were in a slasher movie, because I'm like... Well, SWAT teams what? have that technology. Mm -hmm. yeah, but again, isn't there a thing where you can call 911 no matter what? Not if, it's, not not if, not the, if signal the signal can't, can't, get, through. can't get through. Well, what if you're supposed to be calling... Is it like Weren't there lawsuits about this? Well, no, that, that was just... Um, if you haven't paid your phone bill, that they can cut off your phone service unless you, you call 911. But this isn't cutting off someone's phone service. This is this blocking is the signal from the, even uh, reaching area. the tower. Yeah. Okay. Because, no, it, you can have like low battery, not have any service, like not have anything. Well, if your on battery runs out, you can't call 911 either. 
there's enough emergency battery apparently that's saved up if you do dial 911. Not if your not if your battery dies. Drained, yeah. Yeah, it, if your phone has no power. It doesn't have like an emergency backup battery. No, but apparently if you You push like, the 911 button and the battery suddenly turns on, it's like, "Haha, just kidding." It's like it has that extra 10% below the zero. It's the red line. Yeah, no, I just didn't buy it because I didn't even think it was a SWAT team. I thought it was just a bunch of morons because they keep waiting for an extra team to come out or whatever it is. Well, no, they only expected that they would need those two guys. They didn't expect for those two guys to get caught. All those two guys needed to do was just shoot Bishop, and they were like a foot away from being able to do that. When They'd the guard, be in and out with nobody knowing right, what was when going on. When the guard on. came around the corner, got shot, and they were driven back. So then that was when they had to, okay, we got to try a different tactic now. And so that's why they tried to scare and then throw in the rock that says Bishop on it in the hopes that they would just hand over Bishop. Mm-hmm. And then when that didn't happen, it, it's a continuing escalating thing that they have to keep bringing in more people and doing something bigger because the people inside just won't let them do what need, they need to do. And they can get more people in the midst of a well, they, big ass well, snowstorm too. He so. says at one point that he has 33 guys on his team. Yeah, and yes, they're all and they can, It's taking it, the time to get all 33 of those guys down there. It was plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. They had exactly. it ready to go just in case the first one didn't. Or if it, They were planning this for a while, so they had backups. Right, and if, if it's all people who work in the same... chopper in the middle of a blizzard. Right. And if they all work in the same downtown station, they're all going to be near the area anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, uh, but I didn't I'm guessing get the impression car, that they yeah. were planning this out very much. Well, they, they weren't planning this out very much. They, it was... They thought that plan A would work, and it didn't work, so they had to do something else. So then they had to do something else. It, it, it was believable in that respect. They just had the resources at their disposal. Yeah. No, but Kevin, you just said that they were pl- that it seemed like they were planning this for a long time, but it clearly doesn't. Oh if no, no, just he, like, he said plan A, plan B. Did... That doesn't mean that they took a long time to think it out. They were like, let's get yeah. people to quietly sneak in the back, shoot Bishop. It'll be done and over with. That was the only bit that they had planned out. And so then afterwards, they went from that to, we're going to turn off all your lights and block your cell phones? Well, yeah. Once the cops inside had discovered that there are people outside trying to get in, it's, okay, let's try to scare them so that they'll push our target out to a place where he'll be exposed to us. But the cops inside wouldn't give in to that. Yeah, I never got why he didn't. I was just like, well, when in the original, when it was the father, I cared because I understood why they wouldn't give him up. Whereas Bishop, I'm like, eh, well, because because they think it's Bishop's men who are trying to help him break free. Yeah, I actually I really like that misconception. Go. You also are forgetting that it doesn't it doesn't matter how much they don't like the guy; they're still cops. They're yeah. it's a sworn duty. They can't just forget to do the sworn duty as soon as they uh, it's no longer right. I mean, you know, um, Jasper was fully willing to give him. To, to say, let's put the son of a bitch out there. I don't care. Yeah, but then we, we find out why. It's not just because he's Brian Dennehy. It's also because, hey, he's Brian Dennehy. Well, yeah, which we'll get to. But yeah, I, I didn't have any problems with this bit of plotting. I thought it made sense. I didn't think it made sense at all. I thought the, it was really sudden, convenient. The sudden escalation, if it really wasn't all that planned out, that's convenient. I'm more than willing to kind of fridge logic it away by saying, hey, they had a backup plan in place just in case because they were able to get a helicopter out there. And, and Well, it uh, took the entire film to get the helicopter out there. 
But you would have to realize the amount of paperwork that here I am with Hot Fuzz here. The amount of paperwork that you, you would have to do to requisition a helicopter and then, or all the effort to make that requisition disappear. Well, remember later on Duval, after some people end up killing, says, remember, it, it was Bishop's men who did this. So obviously, yeah, they're... I thought that was so funny when he says that. Because I was like, so we're operating on this? They're setting up a cover story of they came in to prevent a prison break that was trying to free Bishop. See, I thought that so was such a, a drop level of cover line story to just there. explain this away. Like, oh, everyone will think it's Bishop's men. See, well, we I mean, the cops I, inside I, thought it was Bishop's men trying to break him free, so they're just trying to set up that scenario. Actually, you yeah, know what but, I got out of that line? What? I got out of that line. is was like, well, uh, we have this prisoner, and remember, you have to make it look like the Bishop's men did it, so go ahead and rough her up and and molest her a bit so people will think that it's Bishop men's to do that. She I, already looked pretty roughed up, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I didn't get that I, out of I it. Got, I got the idea is they were trying to set up the scenario of Bishop's men tried to break him out. And that's oh, the fault of the writing because... That it wasn't clear enough, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't clear uh, if all three of us got completely three completely different uh, things. It <laughs> that, should be clear true. what they're doing. That's true. Yeah. Well, see, I think what it was is that it was the movie reminding us, oh, see, that's still an option because even though you guys know that Bishop's men couldn't have done it... The, the other cops won't know. Right. So we have it to remind you. It also does you. eventually escalate to the point where they can't really turn back. They've already brought in the, this many resources. The point of no return, yeah. They have to do something there that they can set up a justification that they can yeah, use I as a cover. Yeah, I think once they had the cell phone blocker thing, I think at that point we were well past the, yeah, we can totally get by this because okay. no one will know. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves, though. In an attempt to reach the prison bus and escape, Jake kills one of the attackers and discovers the man is a cop. It turns out the attackers are Marcus Duvall's men. His entire team is dirty and they want to kill Bishop, so he can't finger them in court. All of Marcus's team assembles, including camouflage snipers and fully armored and equipped members of SWAT, and squad cars block off the road to keep any hope of rescue away. This is where I, where I really like the regular cops in squad cars just setting up roadblocks. That really does help to isolate things even further and and make it look like oh everything's in control everything's okay but yeah we've already pretty much covered how marcus's team is operating and everything like that i what i do like is that he is considering the lives inside and whether or not he's willing to take those lives balanced against the amount of people who would go down if you know the 33 people and their families that would all be torn apart if they get fingered in court See, he says that it's the 33 people. Oh, I, don't I know think he's, he's thinking about it, himself. But, but it is justification that he's using. Yeah, but I never believed that either. Well, no, it's, yeah. it's self-justification. We're not supposed to believe him. He's supposed oh, to believe him. It's all him. about selfish reasons. Yeah, I mean, the dude's completely yeah. dirty from top to bottom. but He's supposed to believe him. That doesn't so. mean he's not giving justification that, to others. What I love is that there's no really no one on the team who flinches at this. There's no one on his team who's like, Dude, do we really want to do this? Seriously? They're dirty cops. But, you know, working underground as a drug dealer or an arms dealer is a little different than let's break into a police station and slaughter everyone in there in cold blood. See, this is They're really dirt. where it started falling apart for me. Not because I didn't believe that cops would do this because, I, well, I mean, this is a movie. They have to do something like this anyway. It's a popcorn premise, but it takes it away from this whole nameless force of nature, this unstoppable force to giving faces, giving names, giving motives for this other than, hey, let's cause some damage. Well, I don't mind so much that they've given motivation to the enemy. I mean, it, it is a very different approach. You can argue about how well executed it is, but I don't think it's any less valid of an approach to the basic setup that the original is. 
it's two forces trying to oppose one another. You don't necessarily have to have one of them be a nameless, faceless thing. See, but you're saying how none of those cops, like the dirty cops, flinch at this. Yeah, because, again, they're thinking like Gabriel Byrne's character, which is, fuck all y'all, I'm for me. So, yeah, of course they wouldn't flinch. I do still think there is a sense of the faceless overwhelming force in terms of the SWAT guys. Meh. With their full mask, these... with their full body armor, their high-tech but, weapons. See, yeah, it but... really broke down for me. It was like, you get all these resources, you get all these people willing to kill innocent people for this. It just really bends my sense of willing... Uh, uh, willing uh, suspension of disbelief? Willing suspension of disbelief. It really bends that for me, and I'm willing to spend my disbelief quite a bit, and this was kind of straining that. Okay. The attackers start blasting away at the front of the building with a silenced minigun and flashbang grenades while the squad breaks in through the back. Jake drives the squad back. Realizing he and Jasper are wildly outmatched, Jake frees and arms the prisoner. They all manage to drive off several other attempts to break in. And this gets to what we said before is, why aren't they attacking en masse if they are this large body that's fully armed? Why aren't they just pouring in from every side at once? Instead, just picking, let's just go come in one window at a time. I do agree that it breaks down there. It breaks down, but again, I really like that there's the one sequence of events where they have, again, the no music and just the, the devastation of the them open firing. Here. Just open fire on the station house and just things blowing up, things getting shredded, just no music, just the sounds of destruction mm -hmm. as a huge callback to that. That was... I think probably the most beautiful shot in this movie also. I also love that you have the distant shot of you can just barely hear this silenced minigun. Even a minigun with a silencer will make some level of noise, but you have that great distant shot where you just hear this kind of whirring hum. And anyone from a distance wouldn't know that that's someone's being blowing away the front of this building. And again, a blizzard will muffle a lot of it. Exactly. Yeah. The wind and well, the snow, yeah. Yeah, and it's a hell of a blizzard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I live in BC, and we're like, "Huh." You've got like ten sure. foot visibility at points. There's actually it, a really it makes great it a thing. lot more believable for this. There's actually a great thing that they do, which I guess it's CGI snow. And it, the first time I watched it, I was pissed off. But the second time, I'm like, "Okay, I kind of get what they're doing," which is like the CGI snow that's going by the screen, and you can't even see through the CGI snow. And I'm like, mm -hmm. "Well, of course, no Once one's going to come Once you get to a certain distance, you can't even tell where buildings yeah. are in front of you, which makes a lot of sense. Which is perfect for a helicopter to fly through an hour from now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it makes Magic. a lot of sense why the snipers who are trained professional SWAT snipers, why they're having trouble getting a beat on, on the people. Also, even the ones that are running around outside. So it, it brings back the suspension and disbelief. It, it gives a little bit more realism to that. I don't think it's enough to justify it, though. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, if, you, if you actually even look by the halfway point of the film, the snow starts to die down. Yeah, especially by the time the helicopter comes in, you have just enough for that you to That might be why they weren't able to bring the helicopter until then, because they were waiting for the weather to clear. Yeah. See, I like to think that with the snipers, it's like their first day or something <laughs> as snipers. Because it's my first I've, day. It's my first I've day seen, being a dirty cop on the job. Yeah, because <laughs> I've seen snipers that, like, you remember when we, the Somalian pirates, where they would be holding people hostage. And you would have a sniper that picked these guys off on a floating boat that well, was, like, swaying. It depends. It, it, it depends on the distance. I mean, a, a lot of snipers, it's a sniping team where you actually have another person there who's, like, gauging the wind, who's gauging distance. Yeah, the distance. spotter yeah, and the, the sniper spotter. 
and then you have multiple snipers on that. And and let's not forget that the Somalian pirates, those were Navy SEALs. The Navy SEALs are the best of the best of the best. That's yes. cream of the crop. SWAT These teams guys are, are not. not. These are Detroit SEAL. cops. Yeah, well, I guess this the is dirty Detroit cops are SWAT, like the, you know. <laughs> see, no, see, I think that these dirty cops are literally like the Q team, and that is why they are dirty cops is because they suck otherwise. Well, they're actually pretty good at being a sniper. You'll notice that they're not shooting willy-nilly. They're waiting until they can get a good bead. They'll, right. they'll even say, look, I've got the target, but I don't have a clear shot. I'm not taking the shot. Exactly. And so they're doing it Because if he misses, he's giving away his position. You're giving away position with the muzzle flash, with the uh, trajectory of the bullet. And what a lot of people don't realize, it's really hard to get into position as a sniper and then hold a bead on a moving target. Right. At that distance, at that level of magnification, it's a very difficult shot, and that's not even counting the blizzard. Exactly, and if you take the blizzard into account, realistically, you wouldn't even line up the crosshairs on a person because you would be taking the blow of the wind into account. Mm -hmm. I think it, my problem is, is just I've seen it done so well that I'm like, meh. Based on Kevin's rationalization, I think the two main deaths by sniper that we see later don't happen until the winds give out and the snow dies down. Yeah, the snow down. dies down. Yeah. There's like no snow when those two, when, when, uh, smiling and back. Well, we'll save that for when we get to it. So I like the use of flashbang grenades. They that do a nice cool. job of setting it up. And cause I know it plays a part later on down the road. Was the I the flash... only one who thought that was going to come back? Was I the only one who thought that? Did the flashbang grenades for anybody else seem like the flash went really slowly? Like it ramped up? Well, they wanted to make sure that you could process what yeah, was going on. Yeah, I think on. they probably slowed down the film that was, for that. It, that was a film gimmick. Mm -hmm. Or it could also be that, you know, it's the white that's left in their eyes, trying to kind of simulate that. It's not perfect, but but I do like the use of flashbangs. Mm -hmm. Well, if they've got SWAT tactics and SWAT technology, flashbang grenades are an extremely useful thing. Our prisoners are freed and arm themselves. Instead of just kind of like picking up guns in the station, they Anna gets a Tommy gun from the 1920s that still manages to be loaded and not like jammed or decayed or anything like that. Yeah, it didn't rust right. at all. Hands. No. Right. Uh, ja Rule and John Leguizamo attack a SWAT member with a baseball bat and a samurai sword. That was brutal. That was ridiculous. I kind of yeah. liked it. That was a weird scene because then you have the whole bit of, of uh, Dr. What's your name? Dr. Dr. Sex... Party Dress. Dr. Party Dr. Dress Party. is freaking out. And of course, you know, psychiatrists have to be the most psychologically unstable people around in, in Hollywood. So she has this whole big number counting thing that she does. But of course. Mm. And and is freaking out and encounters the SWAT guy and then suddenly Jaru comes in with a baseball bat and John Leguizamo comes in with a samurai sword and it's it's somehow See, not as cool as you'd think it would be. No, well I hated this because in the beginning of the movie she's very capable. Like she's a very capable woman. But then she and panics, somehow, yeah. Yeah, then all of a sudden she can't take care of herself even though she knows what's supposed to be coming. She just like cowers like a little girl and needs to be saved because she's now the damsel all of a sudden. That's the thing that ticks me off is in these movies is that you have women who are very capable and all of a sudden, oh no, well now's the time for me to be the damsel. Well, so I'll be the damsel. She's a psychiatrist for police yeah, officers. Yeah, but she you know, people know don't stuff. always come into situations where they're having people break into a building to try to shoot them in the head. I mean, and then you have the secretary, Iris, who doesn't freak out. And actually, she, I don't exactly want to say she's as cool as Lee, because she's not. But she holds her head, and she, she stays with the situation. Well, the reason that they did that is because they're like, no, no, wait, we had Lee, and then we had Yellow Sweater in the first movie. Well, so what we I like is that Iris sweater. is not trying to just do an imitation of Lee. It's very much her own character. 
No, but they do take. Far more prom- promiscuous for one. She is, yeah. but and which you, is why you'd I expect, thought she was going to die. Exactly, you would expect her to be the one who would. That's what's interesting is you have these two characters. You have her, and you have the older mentor figure cop who's a week away from retirement. Who you'd both the slutty secretary, guy who's a week away from retirement. You'd expect them both to die. Well, and because they we're both doing go, slasher movies, so it's slasher movie rules. Well, yeah, but they defy those rules. She not only doesn't hey. die, she makes it to the end, and then he goes through a big twist. What's the twist? But What's yeah, the twist? But then you have the whole bit where she's used to dating bad boys and this whole thing, and she's starting to get the hots for Marion, and it's, it's, it's Again, oddly played. Again, this is stuff that they tell us, but I don't see any of this. Except for maybe the fact that Drea DiMatteo is They didn't pretty develop badass. that nearly as much as no. they needed to. She's just like hitting on Lawrence Fishburne, and I'm like, this is awkward for everyone. Yeah. No one wants Especially to see Lawrence this. Fishburne. Yeah, yeah, he's like, can I go back to my wife? She's awesome and played Zoe on Firefly. I, I go back to the Matrix. I want to go back to the Matrix. <laughs> I want to take the red side. pill. <laughs> can I go be and then, And then, of course, you know, everyone's grabbing Tommy guns and samurai swords, and his weapon of choice is, what, two bottles of cognac? Yeah, apparently he's going to get That he drunk. smashes over a guy and sets on fire. He's so much of a badass that he's going to set you on fire, He'll and then he's going liquor. to set you on fire again. He's <laughs> yes. going to set you on two fires, and the two fires will kill you. Not the I one just fire, gotten drunk. but the two. He'll set you on fire <laughs> twice. <laughs> he will set you on fire, and then he will set that fire on fire. It's just to watch you burn a second time. But no, what really frustrated me about Alex is the fact that they turn her into this meat girl because right. all of a sudden it's like she came, i'm like it, it bugged me it really did i kind of like the twist that of anyone in this situation who's going to panic it'll be the psychiatrist just for a contrast standpoint but what i don't like is they really do push it too far i mean she yeah. becomes john leguizamo at some point yeah there was a point where i wrote shut up maria bello and <laughs> i don't like writing that because i love maria bello this is the she point loves- where i said i don't like dr party dress anymore yeah yeah she's no longer Dr. Party Dress. She's Dr. Suck. <laughs> what? <laughs> Though the cops and prisoners are struggling to get along and trust one another, they have all entry points covered in stew while waiting for Marcus to make his next move. Capra, an officer of the precinct, dries up fresh from a party and, and is shocked to find himself coming under fire. Our heroes get him into the building alive, but Beck freaks out and suggests the newly arrived officer is likely a plant from outside. Bishop talks Beck down, but when a back door is later discovered to be open and unguarded, Jake questions Capper and locks him in cuffs, despite the man's continuing claims of innocence. I kind of like this twist, but it's almost it's It's too much of a twist that you kind of know it's not really a twist. I kind of like the idea of another officer shows up drunk from a New Year's Eve party because he wants to come back and party with these people. But then it's the whole, is he a plant or isn't he? It's I, I like the idea, but it still feels so obvious that well, as soon you as know he it's says a red that herring. He's a plant, I'm like, okay, so there's a plant, but it's not him. And then when mm-hmm. we see the door open and Capra's there, I'm like, okay, so it's not him. It's probably Jasper. It would have been great if his name was actually red. Well, that would be so obvious. And yeah. this movie's not... Well, that would be Officer funny herring. or clever or something, but it telegraphs everything before it shows me, and it just pissed me off. Here's where I actually had my first moment of horror in this movie, though, is when the cop outside of the roadblock started waving him through and you knew that it was just it was just so that they could get a better shot at him. And that's what it was. And that actually was a really great moment. And that was the only moment of horror. It's like, no, 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 don't do that. He's going to kill you. And it worked. 
So right. Yeah, I freaked out because really I thought everyone have... was going to die again. Right. And then you have the relief that, oh, God, he made it. And then they suddenly bring up the whole, is he a plant or is anything? And you'll notice that the truck is conspicuously left out of frame for a while. Yeah. Not telegraphing anything to the audience at all. No. Especially for people who saw the original. Yeah. <laughs> Or Absolutely. anyone who is watching this movie and is me and is like, oh, I saw that coming. Yeah. Now, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is the eight-way standoff where everyone has their guns pointed at everyone else because every no, Hollywood movie has gun. to do that. No, you put down your gun. No, yeah. you put down I saw your that gun. when it was Pirates at World's End. I saw that in every movie I've ever seen that is an action movie that they do that cliche. At least in most films, they treat it as a comedy bit. This one took it yeah. seriously. This is serious, you guys. No, you put down your guns. Uh. I believe this is where Anna said the line Popo. Because she's black. Get it? Yeah. Get yeah. it? Get she's it? Black. Yeah. You did there? Yeah, she's also a woman. You forgot the part where she's a woman. No, that's something that Smiley would have said if Anna didn't. Mm. <laughs> or John Leguizamo, and then I would have punched the TV. John Leguizamo. What kills me is that John Leguizamo is a really good actor. Yeah, when he Except wants to when be. He's playing John Leguizamo. It's not that yeah. he doesn't play this character bad. It's just that everything is so cranked up to 11 so constantly. It just gets tiring. He needs it's, to be reined in. Like, John Leguizamo as an actor needs to really be reined in, and he needs a director to be like, no, don't fucking do that. The one scene I do like involving the Craven betrayal is after he's been captured by Marion, is where you have the bit where Jake pulls out his gun and you think, is this going to be a standoff between him and Marion? But no, he starts questioning Capra too. Mm -hmm. You finally get the sense that these two are now a team and they are willing to trust each other and back each other up, even when Jake is told now that you might have to take on one of your own men. Not going to lie to you, I would not bet on this team. <laughs> this is like team not even close to awesome. Well, it's not a team that exactly wanted to come together. They're just kind of thrust together by the circumstances. That was the same in the original also. Yeah. Yeah, but the original it's true. was like having, you know, Ella Fitzgerald and Nina Simone. and Even this the original like had having... its Lawson, you know, who just sat there for most of the movie. Yeah, this this is very B team. This is like we couldn't get anyone good, so um, yeah. here you go. Ethan Hawkman. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a plan is put together to reach Capra's car and make a run for it. When Beck and Smiley blow up the prison bus in their own attempt to escape, which quickly leads to their deaths, Anna and Alex use the distraction to get to Capra's car. Anna hotwires it and starts driving away, only for one of Marcus's men to sit up in the back seat and kill her. Alex is captured and taken to Marcus for questioning, but when she refuses to give him answers, he executes her. That was really brutal, the execution shot. That was. I love that scene. I thought that was the closest this scene ever came to the ice cream truck in the original. Mm-hmm. Shoot the little girl. My only problem is that there are parts in this movie where you just hate the Maria Bello character and you wish that they had built her up a little more as a likable well, presence. I love the fact that they do the very cliche, we made it moment. I'm like, and you're both dead now. I think that was when the movie actually jumped the cliche shark for me. <laughs> you got to realize if you're going to be stealing a car, you always check the back seat. I mean, have they not seen Zombieland? <laughs> Have they not seen every single slash movie that they are in right now? Did they not see Assault on Precinct 13? <laughs> well, I mean, and here's the thing is we know what's going to happen at the end of that scene because we've seen the original. I kind of like that because it kind of gives you a bit of dread of we know what's going to happen. She's going to die and this is going to fail. Side, yeah. 
And See, I kind of think that even gives it a little more power because you had the hopeless, poorly assembled escape by Beck and Ja Rule that where they both just get gunned down. They don't even make it beyond the fence. And they're just... Smiley don't like this plan. Smiley hate Exactly. This plan. They both take bullets to the head from the snipers who can finally shoot through the wind now. Okay, apparently audiences like the character of Beck and they were disappointed he got killed off. And I was like, was the audience for this movie that was watching it and writing notes high... Well, it was probably the Leguizamo family. Um, <laughs> I assume he just like... So the answer is yes. Him. Yeah. Okay. But, but what I like <laughs> is that you have a plan that fails, and then you have a plan where they're hinging all their hopes on this plan, and they're even using the failed plan as a distraction that will help them carry off this plan. And yet, having watched the previous film, we have the sense of dread that we'd expect the guy to sit up in the back seat. It's almost... There's no other way for this scene to play out. But to an audience that hadn't seen the original film. And that's actually, I, I invite you know, our listeners to write in. If you've seen the remake, but have either haven't seen the original yet or saw the original later, tell us, did that moment have a surprise for you when he sat up in the back seat? I still think it works knowing it's going to happen because it gives the scene a dark edge and that you know that it's bound to fail. Well, for me, I mean, I thought it was so cliche, like all the other cliches in this movie. So even if I hadn't, I probably would have figured, and someone pops up from the backseat, because again, slash the movie rules. And then it's followed by the second gut punch of just coldly executing Dr. Party Dress. But I didn't care about Dr. Party Dress. His line is, you're a brave woman, and I wrote, she really isn't, because she couldn't do anything. Like, well, but honestly, she is there she did... when it finally came down to that moment, where she either had to sell them out or not. He was going to kill her either way. No. Hey, he's shown that he's willing to strike deals. Really? When? When they, we, We'll when get to Jasper. Cut... We'll get to Jasper. Yeah, but I mean, up until we get to Jasper, who was a plant? It's like... No, no, no. Jasper was not a plant. I want to make that clear. Jasper sold them out. He didn't. He wasn't a plant. He, he sold them out over the course of the movie. Oh, see, I figured it was a plant. That's what the meeting was about outside back of the station. Well, I figured he was he a was like, no, He was like, they... listen up, guys. Yeah. I'm going to retire here in two weeks. I just want to go off, live in my retirement. You can have the rest. I'll give them to you. Actually, yeah. no, no, because yeah. he knew from the very beginning. He said that's the reason why he was saying just, yeah. just throw him out just, there. That's yeah, just give him Bishop. He wasn't a plant in that they got him into the precinct house specifically for that purpose, but he was already a part of that group, and he figured, oh, well, since I know that this is going to happen and now that it's unfortunately happening here, I might as well make the most of it and go along with it. But wait, so he was a dirty cop? Yeah, Before he was just trying to... From the beginning, he he was in that group. He just wasn't expecting them to do that there. Oh. Them doing that There's there even a drop a, line was... that he's been there forever. So the fact it's... of the matter is, he said, remember, I was trying to get you to just throw Bishop out. You should have listened to me. I was trying to tell you. That was him saying, oh, he was in on it all along. Well, I, I just got that the sense that that was still the smart thing to do at the time. That's No, it... it, it I, no, I don't they, get the sense like, that he no, was totally tied to the dirty cops. I thought he was just trying to get rid of... He just didn't want to die for Bishop. Yeah, I no, would they, they that specifically... Again, that's actually very clear. I had, the, I had the subtitles on while I was watching it. Yeah, no, he later specifically clear. says that that's why he wanted to put Bishop out there because he knew who was out there. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll stand corrected on that one. I'll, I'll have to give it another watch, okay. which I don't I'll mind give... being the only person who recommended the film. Yeah, well, I'll you give did, you, you did I, I might Kevin. give you Dr. Party Dress. I didn't care about her, but 
people. Oh no, I, I I do. As I said, I think they shouldn't have made her character as aggravating as she became at points. But mm-hmm. I still think it was a gut punch of a scene because they set up this kind of terrible romance between her and Jake. So in most films of this type, she would be held a hostage, and she would, and the heroes would end up rescuing her in the end. That's not oh, going to no, happen I, in this film. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't think that because I figured that she was cannon fodder, as it were, because there was too many people in that precinct as we went along. And this is a slasher movie, so she's going to die. But you don't expect it to happen right after the whole death of Anna. You know? No, I did because Anna's dead. So, of course, what's her face has to die, too, because she's had too much screen time already. OK. And we haven't had enough killing. And I do love that shot of her just laying there on the snow as as her blood soaks into it. It's beautifully shot, but it really doesn't do justice to the character because we did not get the character. I mean, had we gotten that great character... I thought there was that... good character there. It's just that whole decision to play her up so panicky at the situation kind of ruined that character. But there was yeah. good character there. At the beginning. Yeah. I thought she began well and she ended well, just in the middle. Not so much. After Jake deals with his guilt, Marcus has a chopper drop another SWAT team on the roof, which starts to make its way down into the building. Jasper finds a sewer access in the basement, so Jake and Bishop set the building on fire, driving the SWAT team out while covering their retreat downstairs. Jake, Bishop, Iris, Jasper, and Capper all make their way through the sewer to a street exit. Bishop takes Iris hostage in an attempt to escape, but they all suddenly find themselves surrounded by Marcus's men. Jasper was the one at the back door who sold the rest of their survivors out. Or, as you guys pointed out, he was part of it all the time. The last thing he wants is to give up his last few years of approaching retirement so scum like Bishop can go free. What I like about this scene is that you get, it it should be expected, but it still kind of caught me by surprise when I first watched it, is Marion just suddenly grabbing Iris and taking her hostages. He's out of the building now. Now his priorities have changed to escape. I have to admit, while they were uh, trailing kerosene all all through the station house, mm-hmm. I was humming the uh, Home Alone theme. See, I was humming <laughs> Ride of the Valkyries, but that's because I'm weird. It feels so formulaic, and both films have this of, we got to burn the building down at some point. Yeah. Well, I was going to use the word formulaic for the next sequence, like Jasper conveniently remembering that there is an escape out in the Of basement. course! Jasper, right. uh, the meeting they in the, even in the alleyway. They say, why didn't you remember that earlier? And I'm like, because he's the player. You never asked. I think they justify that with his betrayal, though. It sounds like a really cla- crappy plot twist until you realize that he's the only one who had that information, and he's waiting till he can actually use it to his best advantage. Which only lends yes. credence to he knew about this all along. Yes, I'll stand corrected on that one. <laughs> Which, again, I already knew it was him after there was only Capra by the back door, and I'm like, well, it's not Capra, so Jasper! Well, one other thing that I, I want to point out that I, I forgot to mention earlier was I like the idea that our heroes inside had everything covered. They said we have eight people on seven entry points, so they had the building fortified, and it was only when Beck and Ja Rule decided to run off that that ruined the numbers. Well, you'll notice that Jasper kept leaving his post unguarded. True. Yes, exactly. And But but then this also gets into my complaint of why isn't there an Omnas strike is you now have the helicopter coming and bringing a SWAT team on the roof. Wouldn't you also be coming in from all sides now that you've lessened their eight members by four? They can't cover all points. And now you also have people coming down from the top. You would be having the SWAT coming in from every angle then. Well, no. it's also dark and just destroyed in there. I would imagine they didn't want to have any uh, friendly fire going on. No, I know, but this is supposed on. to be like the big action scene where it's finally they're unleashing everything they have on this building only for it to be set on fire. And I think that would have, 
it's it's lacking the the extra force that's being thrust against them. Well, this is the well, poor execution part of the entire yeah. movie. Yeah. Yes. Again, because this is a slasher movie, and in a slasher movie, that's what happens. Maybe you... it was a budgetary thing where they could only afford to have like four SWAT guys at a time. And so it's like know. the Blue Man group where there's nine of them, but you only see three at the same right, time. Right, but you know, but that's the thing about you know the original is they could only afford like maybe two, three gang members at a time, except for those few distant shots where you see them running by in the woods. So mm-hmm. he maximized it. Let's have everybody dress up in outfits, and one at a time, we'll shoot whenever we can get someone jumping in through a window, and we'll make it look like there's like thirty guys. So there's no reason why you can't take like four guys in SWAT outfits, and by using multiple shots, make it look exactly. like there's twenty of them there. You know, especially because. With the SWAT outfits, they are faceless. Exactly. You don't need to do anything to yeah, change I, them. Have one yeah, of them you like pink. grab some grips. They're not doing anything. Tell them to stop coiling that thing that they're coiling. Well, and... you could even just use the four same stunt guys dressed up in in the outfits. You know, it's it just or it doesn't make get, sense like, John, to me. John Leguizamo and Ja Rule, they're not doing anything at this point. Exactly. This is one of those bits where the film really kind of drops the ball for me. Is well, you didn't have that yeah. big final well, one force point in the film where the film drops the ball. Well, well this, is, forget, this is the Noel biggest point. This, movie, this is so. the biggest point for me that it dropped the ball. I keep saying that this movie's not that clever. Like it's adequate, but it's not particularly clever. I want to say I, it I, is clever to a point. It's like it keeps teetering between being clever and being formulaic and falling it's back and forth. In exposition, it's not clever. There are clever ways where it diverts from formula and clever little spins that it puts on things, but there's too many bits where it also relies on formula. Well, that's the thing is it's there's so few and far between that it's like you, it's there were that, moments that well, I thought were clever that you didn't. So, yeah, but it's like that drunk guy hitting on me at the bar every once in a while. He'll have a funny joke. But for every funny joke, there's like 30 where I'm like, shut up. <laughs> oh, when Bishop actually grabs Iris, I was like, uh, you kind of went there, movie. But the thing is, Bishop even says before that, that he's very much for himself yeah. So I'm not at all surprised. Like, that's the that's the thing I like. As soon as he got out of the building, his priorities changed. Well, that's the thing is that's why I like Napoleon in the original was that he did the right thing because it was the right thing to do. He didn't do it for any kind of accolades or anything. Well, both characters are equally valid. I mean, I this is not the same character as in the original movie, but I kind of like the idea that, yes, he is a cold-blooded crime lord who is only working with other people as much as he needs to. He is not a good man. He is a bad guy. He is a villain. I honestly found Bishop to be the most believable and and most three-dimensional character out of anybody in this film. Mm. And that's sad because I said Lawrence Fishburne was there for the catering. (laughs) I regret nothing. It must have been really good catering, though. During a struggle, Bishop manages to plant a flashbang grenade on Jasper, which goes off and lets our heroes make a run for it. Iris and Capra escape in a car. It crashes after Marcus's lieutenant shoots the tires out, but Iris manages to kill him. Jake and Bishop duck into the woods and team up again to take out Marcus's men. Marcus shoots Bishop in the gut, but just before he can take the kill shot, he's forced into a standoff with Jake. Both fire and go down, Jake with a bullet to the leg, Marcus with a bullet to the brain. Bishop takes Jake's gun and finally makes his escape, despite his wound and Jake's promise to track him down. Legitimate police and rescue finally arrive, and Iris helps Jake to an ambulance as the sun rises on the horizon. I love how Bishop manages to just have a flashbang grenade handy. He just carries them around in his coat. And how he angers Brian Dennehy into beating him so that he can strap it onto him. And then nobody cares enough about Brian Dennehy from, like, his dirty cop team to be like, hey, what's he putting in your pocket? They're like, whatever. We never see if he actually dies. He just has this big gory burn on his stomach, you know? I assume he did. I didn't care. Brian Dennehy. <laughs> yeah. Who cares? 
there are two things I have to say about this sequence. One is the whole Ronick and Bishop dynamic. It really is really, really forced here. It's like, oh, no, you, you saved me, but I'm going to go after you. No, you're going to escape, but I'm going to go after you. They extremely... take away any choice that Jake has to make by shooting him in the leg and having him lose his gun. Yeah. So it's... he can't really do any. He doesn't have any choice that he can do about Bishop. It's completely different from, and I, I know you keep saying let these things stand on their own, but I have to go back to Good Bishop and Napoleon Wilson, where Wilson is going back to jail and Bishop gives him his last dignities, lets him walk out as a normal person. Mm-hmm. Whereas here it's like, oh, oh I, well, I said I was going to turn on you in the beginning because I'm out for me and see, look, I'm out for me. It just really, yeah, really I, I don't mind that it's different. I mind that it's not as well done. Right. I agree with you. I think there's too much exposition there. I mean, he doesn't really need to... We we know Bishop just wants to escape. And then, of course, they have to have him be shot in the gut, so he, he's probably going to die dead. anyways. He's dead. He makes right. it like a mile and he's gone. Right. And then, of course, as I said, Jake has been shot in the leg again and loses his gun. So there's he doesn't have any choice in the matter in terms of what now do I do with Bishop? So they don't really even have a standoff. It's Bishop has the upper hand, so he leaves. And so, of course, Jake is going to have to go, I'll be after you. But the problem is, is that Jake basically 180s right afterwards when they ask him about if there's anyone else. And he's like, nope, just me and Marcus. Well, remember that thing with the come? No. Okay. Whatever movie. Right. That, that, just roll your yeah. credits. I don't it, get it, that. Yeah. I'm like, just roll your credits. You yeah. don't know what you're doing. Though I do like that Iris survived. And I, I actually like her scene where she has to fight the attack, where they have this whole setup where she talks to Bishop, where he's talking about pulling out a man's, uh, a man's Adam's larynx. Apple. Or Adam's, yeah. apple. Adam's apple. And so she tries to do it, and it doesn't work. So she just grabs the guy's knife it. and sticks That's it. That's the thing. I'm like, I actually wanted her to do it. Right. It takes a lot of strength to actually push your fingers through someone's skin. And so I love it doesn't work. So she just grabs the guy's knife and stabs him. Well, she could have just ripped off his ear, too. It takes a lot less weight to rip off a person's ear. Exactly. Or even she had her thumb on the guy's eye, but it never went in. So Yeah, again, and, it's like... I... And here's the thing. That knife was not a long knife. You stab someone through the chin with that knife, it's not even probably going to go through the roof of their mouth, let alone kill them. Although, Maybe if it does they... go through the roof of the mouth, it doesn't need to go too far. But even then, it depends on where it hits, because, you know, you can take damage to the brain and not die. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm guessing at that point it would have stole, slowed if him down. If she stuck it, it in his temple, that would have made more sense. All she had to do was stick it in the side of his neck, where your jugular is. Side of the neck, you're, you're yeah. Not, yeah, you're not going or anywhere. Through. And that's already been established with a pen in the opening scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All you need to do is stab someone in the jugular, they're done. Yeah. The second thing I have to say about the sequence, this is a two-part thing, so it's the second and third thing I have to say about the sequence, is that one the look that the cop and the fire chief give him in the end, it made me think, wait, wait a minute. Are these guys part of the Kirka cop thing too? Are they mm. actually not getting away? Which makes me think... That you know, would have actually been a nice here, scene. Which, which is what I'm getting to. Which made me think the third thing here, what would have really, really turned this movie around for me and made me really love this movie would be if after all that... They just cap them there. Yeah. And that's the end of the movie. That would have really made me think. That would have really made me love this movie. And not because, haha, I got to see Ethan Hawke die. It's because, no, that would have been a really, really interesting way to, to end this. Well, it would totally take you by surprise. Like because you wouldn't win. Be, yeah, you wouldn't be expecting that. Because I'm like, there's more than just Marcus and Marcus's aide, who I forgot was in the movie for the entire part of it. So, 
But the look he gave him, it's supposed to be like the suspicious, are you really saying that Bishop's not there or is Bishop there and you're trying to cover for him? But it comes off as kind of a calculating, can I take him out now or wait until later kind of a look. Yeah, yeah. except that they, they never show you it. So it's like yeah. they, they never actually go there. So That's my own personal headcanon that that yeah, last no, guy. Was I didn't cop. think of that, but that actually would have, yeah, if they really wanted to do something bold and palsy, that would have been a that yeah, way Had to end they it. done that, that would have freaking wowed me. But nope. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind the ending of Jake and Iris are alive. The sun's finally up. The storm's cleared. It's a Hollywood ending, but it still kind of works. And Ronick gets his smoke. My big problem with the scene in the woods is the whole aspect of they can see us, but we can't see them. Despite the fact that the scene is lit so brightly that you yeah. can see everything. Yeah, remember how in the last one I was talking about how well they lit things, but it looked natural. There's actually a like, lot of really good lighting and cinematography in this movie, so I don't understand why they so yeah. badly dropped the ball there, especially yeah, to point it out. Yeah, because it's like specifically in that scene, it's just so bad. Right. If you cut the line and you cut the emphasis on night vision... It works okay. This, you know, they're approaching dawn. You know, during the night when it's snow after a blizzard, it's pretty bright just because of all the light reflecting off the snow. So yeah. it, also, it makes after, sense. If you yeah. just don't call it out, it's not a problem. Plus, this is like freshly fallen blizzard snow. That shit is so crisp and so loud when you walk in it. Yeah, yeah. you can't really Your sneak up on sniper is going to be really loud. Crunch, crunch. They're trying to, like, I know, like, I can still hear the crunching, but they're trying to play music over it. But I can still hear the crunching of them crunch, crunch, yes. crunch through the well, snow. And that, like, yeah. And that brings up the last point is if they can see you and you can't see them and they've got guns, why aren't you dead? Exactly. And Jake does this whole bit of, I'll draw their fire. He, there's no way that he should have been out, able to outrun the machine gun, you know? No. Not in that much of snow. Especially you, when you're like, trying to run thunk, through snow, thunk, you know? Thunk, yeah. thunk, thunk, Yeah, when it's supposed to be blizzard snow, I'm like, yeah, no, you're not getting far. Right. I mean, they should have just kept the big final standoff in that back alley. Yeah. Instead of there. running off into these woods. I don't understand. this. The whole woods thing is just, they just bungle it like hell. It, yeah. And I love how it's Jake must be one hell of a crack shot because in both the opening scene and in this one, he takes perfect headshots. I know. Quick well, draw this, headshots, is, this, you know? this sounds credence to my theory that the dirty cops are actually the Q team because look at Bishop. He gets a fucking leg shot. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's he the sucks. thing is, well, the dirty cops, you know, as G.I. Joe proved, when you become evil, you have no aim. You know, that's only in G.I. Joe, Cobra. though. The Imperial Stormtrooper Marksmanship Academy. G.I. Joe is the Bible of, of reality. You know that. Mm, no, I never yeah, liked all, it. All reality is like both the Imperial Stormtroopers versus the A-Team. Nobody hits anybody. Exactly. <laughs> I love how uh, the lieutenant can't kill the secretary, but she can stab him in the chin with a tiny knife and he's dead. Yeah. So it's yeah, yeah. They're a bad girl. There's bits in this climax that I don't mind the idea behind the standoff. I don't mind the... I, I actually really like that Iris survives. There's implausibilities there, but I like that she survives. And I love that she fights back. But yeah, the whole climax in the woods. It's, it's just... It's a mess. <laughs> it's the execution of the movie that's really horrible, which is really bad because the actual execution shot that they take in the movie is really good. Well, I mean, here's the thing. There's a lot of execution in this movie that's really good which makes the parts that aren't good stand out even more because they're just, mm -hmm. when it's bad, it's so bad. Well, and that's the thing too, is the whole cop thing. I'm like, they're trying to take kill shots. So 
I, I guess Gabriel Byrne just slept through that part of the Academy. Yeah, and it's like the only time they ever really succeed at taking their kill shots is with Beck and Smiley. That Those are the snipers, though, so, you know, yeah. they, they were trained for that. True. And apparently Gabriel Byrne just slept through that. So well, you know, by this point, so many of the cops have died that all that he was left with in those woods was Joe the Rookie, you know? Well, and apparently and Gabriel Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, and apparent and sent red shirt. <laughs> Am I the only one who thought Gabriel Byrne was just so phoning it in here and was like he he no, felt yeah, he, he felt to me like Edward Norton in the well, Italian they, Job where he's there because like his Edward character Norton, has the leap, least depth of the entire movie. Yeah, but I've they seen try to small, give all these characters depth. I mean, he was him, the most forgettable person. He was faceless simply because we didn't care about. I him. mean, I think the reason why none of us bought it when he was talking about how it was the lives of the thirty-three men versus the lives of these people in the building is that he didn't play it. You never got any sense of conflict for him on what he was doing. I've seen actors that you can actually take something that's not, you know, that that's a very yeah, small Jeremy part, Irons and in Dungeons and Dragons. Like you've seen actors who take bit parts who end up with like freaking Oscar nominations because they're so amazing, and yet here it's like, yeah, you you've got enough lines, you could do something with it. He just doesn't want to. He's just here because he's Gabriel Byrne. He's third build in the credits, and he's here for your paycheck. Thank you. Yeah. So I think overall, we pretty much agree that this is a messy film. To me, it still works. It's still a fun way. It's a film I'll ca I would catch if it were on cable. There's enough good in it that I still enjoy it. But I see where you guys are coming from in that there are problems and you, you know, your mileage may vary as to whether or not they're overwhelming problems or if they're problems you can work through. My thing is, is that this movie has enough problems that I stop giving it a credit at a point. And I'm like, OK, you know what? You can't do anything right. I don't care that you like the fact that it's got a few moments. That's great. But it's got so many problems for me that I was like, I'm not going to give you any more. Like, I'll give something a mulligan if it's still good enough. Whereas here, it's just crap to me. And I was just like, OK, you know what? You, you get something every once in a while. But otherwise, you don't know what you're doing, movie. And I couldn't give it a mulligan or anything. I'm like, I'm not going to give it something because it was clever a couple of times. But otherwise, I just wanted to punch the TV. And it's an expensive TV. So, you know, yeah. that would not have been good. Uh, it's like I said way at the beginning, there's way too much stuff that they're trying to cram in, and because of it, it just felt cluttered. It felt rushed. There were too many plot threads that I felt got dropped or didn't get addressed. Or it, it... or as we pointed out, a few bits that weren't made clear enough so that we all had different interpretations of it. Right. Like, here, here's the thing. What happened to uh, Bishop's crew in the newer precinct house, especially the guy that got punched in the head, and they were like, we're going to get you, we're going to get you, we're going to get you, and never see them again. What would have been fun is if they, this entire night, had been planning how they're going to break Bishop out of jail, and then they like they there, drive they up to capped. the scene, and just as all the smoke is clearing, and Jake and Iris are being led away. Again, would have been a better ending than that the one we got. Funny. But here's that... the thing, they didn't know, Bishop's crew wouldn't have known that they had pulled him off to that particular district, because that was a last minute decision made on the road. Right. But they're gangsters, shouldn't they know these things? Wouldn't that be fun if then they broke into wherever the federal holding place is that he was supposed to go and then find that he's not there? Yeah, it just felt really, there was like almost too much backstory for Ronick, where all I needed to know about him is that he doesn't apply himself and this is where he starts to apply himself. Mm -hmm. There was too much with that. There was even a little bit too much with Bishop, way too much of John Leguizamo. It just dragged things down. Mm hmm. 
I had trouble getting into it because of that. It just I just felt like there was way too much in there. Yeah. When they kill John Leguizamo and they try to make it look like it's this big dramatic scene and I cheered because he was dead. Probably not a good thing. Yeah, everybody after the uh, original prison guards, everybody that died got a slow kind of... Um, Meaningful death. Dramatic, like it means Angel's something. view, the blood drains slowly. I felt and much more bad for Smiley slow. dying than I did for John Leguizamo. Yeah, at least Smiley. Dude, I felt bad Smiley for was just looking out for Smiley. Smiley didn't like that plan to begin with. Smiley just wanted to get out of there. <laughs> Please continue referring to yourself in the third person. Smiley will do that. <laughs> <laughs> I love the bit where John Leguizamo has the line, Beck likes Smiley's plan. John Leguizamo isn't funny. No, whoever wrote that line wasn't funny. No. <laughs> well, the guy who wrote this, he wrote a film called The Negotiator starring yeah, uh, Sam I Jackson and movie. Kevin Spacey. I didn't like it. I liked it. I, I thought he it was... He wrote Jack. I've seen that too. Well, I didn't like it. Yeah. He's I written enough Jack. stuff that I don't... I like The Negotiator. The Negotiator is a lot like this movie in terms of it's a cop drama. There's a lot of formula, but there's occasional moments where it plays with the formula. And I like those moments. Yeah, but see, you give movies a lot of credit for having moments where and I'm like, yeah, you had a moment, but the rest of it sucked. So screw you. I didn't think that any of the things sucked to the point where it was unwatchable. Yeah, well, just because it's adequate or just because it's watchable does not mean that, you know. Well, the thing is, people think the word average means it's bad. No, that just means no, it's midline. No, average just means, eh, you tried, but you're not very good. No, but it doesn't mean that it's bad either. It's midline. It's neither great nor terrible. It's just, it's middle of the road. And there's yes, nothing wrong not with that. I can st- remake. But, that, but there's nothing wrong with being a middle of the road flick. You can still enjoy a middle of the road flick. I still enjoy middle of the road flicks a lot. Yeah, but that's not what I wanted from a remake of Assault on Precinct 13. Well, that's which... not what anyone wants in a film, but that doesn't mean it still can't be enjoyed in some respect. Yeah, but I don't like adequate. Like, I I don't want to watch Sucker Punch when I can watch Inception. Like, I don't want to watch something that's just average. Depends on what I'm looking for in a film. And this is a film that I will watch again. I'm not at all shocked by that anymore. <laughs> well, I think, I think, and this brings us into, so if you were told you had to pick one of these two films to watch once a year, every year, for the rest of your life, which would it be? I think we all are pretty much in agreement on this. I think you pretty much knew how I felt as soon as I said that this was my new Valentine's Day viewing. Duh. Or the original is, yeah. Yeah. Kevin, you with the original? Definitely the original. Like I said, this is something that film students should watch if they're going to be taking the craft seriously. The original definitely is an exercise in the artwork of filmmaking, of screenwriting, and just of just direction in general. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. I enjoy the remake. I think it's a fun film. But the original is a classic. It is a fantastic film that you can't help but be just fully sucked into every time it comes on. I don't want to say nothing can replace this. It's just nothing has yet. It's a good concept. I appreciate the remake for trying to do its own thing. There are times when it pulls it off. There are times when it doesn't. But it is not the original. The original is just a perfect film. From beginning to end. Now, the main film that influenced John Carpenter when he created this was a film called Rio Bravo. It was a 1959 Western directed by Howard Hawks and starring John Wayne, which was about a group of people in an isolated Western frontier town who arrest the brother of a cattle baron, and the cattle baron rounds up this huge posse quarantines the entire town and they basically have to fortify the police station in order to keep this posse from getting in. 
Howard Hawks would go on to redo this film twice in 1966 with El Dorado and in 1970 with Rio Lobo, both unofficial. Neither of them use the same character names, neither of them credit the original, but they're both still essentially the same story being retold in a different way. And John Carpenter kind of rolled with this when he did the 2001 film Ghosts of Mars. Ghost of Mars is essentially a futuristic western where Mars has been partially colonized with small mining villages, partially breathable air, and a railway system connecting all the various towns. The main thrust of the plot is a group of cops led by Natasha Henstridge, well initially led by Pam Greer, but she quickly dies, led by Natasha Henstridge, who come to a small town where a notorious outlaw Desolation Williams, played by Ice Cube, has finally been arrested and is going to be brought into the central town for a hearing. Unfortunately, the miners have dug up an ancient temple that contains the warrior bloodlust spirits of Mars who look on human colonists as invaders, so they infect a bunch of the miners who then basically turn themselves into reavers by scarring themselves and piercing themselves and tearing their own skin and then going on a bloodthirsty rampage slaughtering anyone in their path. This, of course, collides with the attempt to get Desolation Williams out of a prison, so the cops and the prisoners have to team up to fight the warrior bloodless spirits of Mars. This is not a great movie. It's not one of Carpenter's best, but there is a lot of fun to be had in it. It's not as good as the original Assault on Precinct 13, but there is a lot of that good 70s grindhouse grit to it. The characters are nice. The whole bit of the cut-up Reavers chasing after everyone is actually really fun and played up kind of campily. But as a genuine threat, there's a lot of good supporting cast. This was one of Jason Statham's first American films. It's a fun movie. It's not great, but it's a fun movie. And surprisingly, there's a few elements in this that would actually show up in the 2005 remake, most especially in terms of it comes down to the hero and the villain, and the cop has taken a wound to the leg and has been disarmed. So the criminal takes the opportunity to finally make his escape, and she makes the vow that I'll come after you. So it was kind of fun watching that scene with the 2005 remake in context. I don't know if that was intentional or if that's just Hollywood plotting rearing his ugly head. Yeah, I'm like, wait, is he ripping <laughs> off all of John Carpenter now? Right. <laughs> but it's a fun film. It, it was a very cheap film, so it's on a low budget and it kind of shows it. But it's, if you like John Carpenter, this is kind of a nice return to the old school John Carpenter grindhouse vibe. It, it's not one of his best, but it's certainly not one of his worst. So have, have either of you seen the film? I have not, actually. I saw, like, tiny parts of it when I worked at a movie theater and it was out. So okay. I, I've maybe seen two minutes of it in total. Okay. It's not a film I'd recommend to just the average Joe, but if you're a Carpenter fan, it's worth checking out. It's It doesn't disappoint. And there's actually a really great sequence where... As in the original, you have it where the, the Reaver people are pouring in down a hallway and our heroes have to hold them off as best they can. So it's our four heroes are all fully armed and break into two teams of two, where two people will just basically empty whatever weapons they have in this oncoming horde, then drop back while the next two come up with their weapons and empty them, while the other two are reloading, and then they'll come up. And it's just this constant switch off as this horde is pushing them further and further back. That was actually a really great, really well done sequence. It's a fun film. So if you guys are curious, to, if you enjoy Assault on Precinct 13 and are curious to check out Carpenter kind of doing a different spin on the same story, definitely go check it out. So I think that brings us to a close tonight. Kevin, thank you very much for joining us. 
Oh, thank you for having me. Hey, Kevin, can I borrow the internet car? I promise I will not wreck it. I may raise the dead, but I will not wreck the internet car. Five dollars. I can do that. <laughs> as long as you don't actually ask for it and immediately forget that you told me that it was five dollars. Then, yes. Okay. <laughs> Evie, you want to tell us what we're doing next month? No, but I will anyway. Um, we're doing the original Halloween and the Rob Zombie remake, reimagining, re-molestation. Yeah, there we go. That's what we can call it. <laughs> yeah, we'll be doing that. Yeah. I'm so, so glad excited. I was on this one and not that one. I'm, I know, right? This is going to be interesting because I'm a huge fan of the original Halloween and I have never been able to bring myself to watch the remake. So this I've is going to be a new experience for me. A remake that you uh, can't uh, bring yourself oh, to just, watch? Oh, yeah, no, I don't already... support all remakes. I take them on a case-by-case -case basis, and I just always loathe this from a conceptual basis when I heard his take on it. So I've seen all of Rob Zombie's movies, so this is going to be fun for me. I actually because... haven't seen any of his movies. I've seen all of them. I've even seen the sequel to Halloween, which actually influences how my feelings on his Halloween remake. I tried to sit through House of a Thousand Corpses, and I just... I, I made it all the way through. I it. took that bullet for everyone. I don't blame you. It's like a music video that just keeps going. With no music. So I'm going to be very curious to see the remake of Halloween. Yeah, Kevin, maybe don't listen to that episode. It's just going to be me screaming for two hours. That one might actually even be me screaming for two hours. We'll see. It's just going to be the we'll two see. And yet it'll be better than House of a Thousand Corpses. <laughs> hey, to be fair, oh. watching... <laughs> yeah, that's sick burn. <laughs> but I will say that watching my cat lick his bum is better than House of a Thousand Corpses. So, you know. <laughs> Again, we're, we're, we're just lowering the bar to the effect that there is no bar. <laughs> yeah. No, we're lowering the bar to the effect that it hits someone in the nuts and it plays on YouTube. Just wait until two years from now where uh, you'll be doing an episode on House of a Thousand Corpses, the remake. <laughs> House of a Thousand and One Corpses. <laughs> <laughs> Starring you, Bowl. <laughs> I, I'm so glad he hasn't made a remake yet. <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing. Because I'm like, Noel, seriously, I will not watch any of Bowl's movies. I don't care if he does a remake. I will not watch that movie. I will not be on I've that I've tried. I've never made it through an entire one of his films. I, I just can't. Yeah, I've tried. I'm, like, I, I'm forgiving a lot of things, but I just, his moves are so bad. But anyways, yeah. we're completely they're, tangenting here. They're just horrible. We gotta let Kevin turn on his AC. Okay. All right. Thank you again for joining us, Kevin. Oh, thank We're you for awesome. having me. Good night, Evie. Good night. To read show notes for this and every one of our episodes, please visit IHateLoveRemakes.com. The comment sections are open, so let us know what you think about the films discussed. I Hate Love Remakes is in no way affiliated with the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. I Hate Love Remakes is a Made of Fail production. Madeoffail.net. We were unpopular before it was cool. Hey, bish, 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 bish. Can you move like this? Bish, 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 bish. Well, we have to remember this is the guy who did Elvis. Point. Surprisingly, there were no shotguns and exploding cars in Elvis. That you know of. <laughs> he probably kept them on set just as kind of like the security blanket. <laughs> it's got to be a shotgun in there somewhere, even if it's behind the camera.
Yeah, shoot into the jailhouse rock, yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> was much, much, much better in Super Mario Brothers. He was much better in Spawn. Dude, he oh, was much God. better in Mulan Rouge. Yeah, remember he played the clown movie. in Spawn. Uh, I liked. I, hey, I'm one. Of, I'm one of the few unapologetic fans of Super Mario Brothers. Dad, I'm the other one. <laughs> Most people don't know it was written by the guy who wrote the Bill and Ted movies, and it has that same sense of humor. See, I liked the Super Mario Brothers movie. It I thought it, was it doesn't really clever. have anything to do with the game, but it's still a fun movie in its own right. I thought it was really clever. Yeah. No one's gonna listen to my show anymore. <laughs> Yes, all credibility has faded away. <laughs> Flitted away in a Detroit snowstorm. <laughs> Only I am cool now. Oh no, yeah, well. I take a whiskey drink. I take a vodka drink. And when I have to pee, I use the kitchen sink. That is really unsanitary of me. I should probably stop doing that. Mm, I miss the old Muppet show. I wonder if the Muppets in the new Muppet movie are the same ones that they used before or new ones. But they're new ones. Damn it. Well, I guess the old ones would probably be falling apart by now. I bet I could punch Ethan Hawke in the face and make him cry like a little girl. <laughs>